Good evening. Welcome to Still Talking Uncut. I'm your host, Big Easy, from the YouTube channel, Fibbly Moonshine. Uh, your other host up here is Sean Rigsby, Master Distiller. Good to see he's got a hat on this time. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know, we have, a, we have a special guest. Our first guest, um, Alan Bishop from French Lick Distillery. Spirits of French Lick. Yep. Spirits of French Lick, sorry. That's all uh, good. <laughs> and... um. French Lick, Indiana. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm glad to be here, guys. I think I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, greatly, it's it's an honor, man. Like I said, you're our first guest, and uh, you had me on one of your guys's, and absolutely, why not? yeah. You know? so it's, it's it's definitely an honor. You know, um, yeah. My main question is is how do you have the unpleasant tree of knowing Sean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically through through facebook but then uh we both got <clears throat> both got ricky gibson <laughs> to build us some tennessee thumpers and rick being the dick that he is purposely so i had him rick was on me forever about getting a tennessee thumper and i avoided him for the longest time they finally talked me into it and started off as he's going to make me a little a little bitty two jar thing for a little uh, you know, test still that I had, and then it went to, well, let's make you a four jar thing for bigger still, and then he got me interested finally, and I was like, all right, fine, let's do this. But you know, I had him build the first one of them that I know of that had the um, the bypass after the thumper on it, and then two lines of jars with two other bypasses. So you know, if you're halfway through your run, you're running short on flavor because uh, I do a lot of botanical distillations, and you need more flavor. You cut the one line of jars off, cut the other one on. But Rick, in all of his jackassedom, and I love the guy, literally did this to fuck with me and Sean. He took all the parts from both of our thumpers and mixed them all up in one box. And Sean was nice enough to, to deliver my still to, to my farm uh, in the box. And then we proceeded to spend the next two hours uh, going through this, through this thing like an erector set, trying to find out what parts belong to which fucking still. And so, uh, to, so this is the jigsaw yeah. uh, still story that yes, John's talked yeah. about um, how how not all unions are created equal. <laughs> yeah, Rick, nope. man, he uh, I had them all laid out, you know, ready to go. I was gonna put them in the truck the way they, you know, I wanted them to go, so I knew what went with what. And uh, well, you know, Rick, he's you know a prankster. Right. Anything he can do to make someone else's day hard. And do you while think he did it on purpose? It, do you oh, think yeah. he did it on purpose? He said he did. We called him. He goes, Boy, you, you idiots can't figure this out. <laughs> and, and he was wondering why we didn't call him while we were right. trying to figure it out. Yep. I, I could see Rick sitting there like Mr. Burns, just waiting, waiting for that phone call, just staring at he him. Was. Like, Man, he, these dumbasses are going to call me eventually. <laughs> it was hot to. that day. Oh, my God. It was hot. I was hungover. I think Sean might have been a little hungover. It was hot. He got there at, like, noon. Like, the sun was just just right there. Like, hey, guys, what's up? How's it going? Warming up for you? It was oh, bad. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a great time, man. That was actually the, the first, you know, when I actually got to meet you. Yeah, and uh, you brought me out there, and it, it you know, it, it was a good time, man. It was a real good time. I enjoyed the shit out of it. Absolutely, you, know, you, you learn a lot about a person when you um, you go through some bullshit like that. With, <laughs> where you're both you're both so frustrated, you could just be like, you know what? I don't even want it. I don't even want well, it. I'm done. I'm done. It was so, funny because you know. I kept pulling parts out and giving them to him, and we're like, 
wait a minute, this don't look right. So we, we kept going back to the truck, looking under the seat, behind the seats, you know, making sure we didn't forget anything. And, uh, but yeah, that's, we, we finally got to figure it out. And when so I got, it's always, it's always like that with Rick too, just like going to Moonshiners Bowl and then, then all of a sudden, you know, getting, uh, you know, going from uh, doing a distilling talk to, to Rick Gibson setting you up as uh, doing a popcorn Sutton fucking thing right in the middle of the crowd of everybody that you don't know, right? Here's some Carlos Rossi wine, pour it in the still and run it in front of 10,000 yeah. strangers. It'll be all right. Yeah, at a moonshine festival. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, that, sounds like a good time. <laughs> it was. It was. It was a real good time. So, oh, Can I wind up with that still? Yeah. yeah, 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 right. Yep. Nice, yep. and it's now running down there at a Hall Brothers Distillery down there in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, nice. So yeah, that, he had your head. Yeah, that that was a nice that was a nice still. That was a, a fantastic still, especially that hexagonal tank he had on it and all that yep. stuff. That was that was a really cool, really cool setup. Oh yeah, it was fun to run, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, Alan, won't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your uh, history, and what? Hold on, hold on, Sean. What well, you drinking on over there, Alan? What are you drinking on? Just straight up coffee tonight, because I've, no. uh, <laughs> I've had a, I've had a, I'll be honest with you, I've had three, three late nights this past week, and uh, I'm pretty sure that my liver uh, has now communicated with the rest <laughs> of my body about how we're not, our brain isn't making the best decisions in the world, and okay. uh, so I'm just, uh, you know, at some point you just have that moment where you're trying not to die. Yeah. Um, but that said, I got something I'm excited to get into here uh, in a couple days. So my buddy Tyler Wood, uh, of course, got his distillery going now, and he was kind enough to send me. Uh, where's he out of? Uh, down in Kentucky, Western Kentucky. Um, and he was on obviously on Moonshiners back in the day too. But uh, he sent me, let's see, the white whiskey that he's got, which is a four grain with oats, which is similar to, to something that I do. And he actually sent me a uh, – he hasn't released anything aged yet, but he sent me a sample, and I think it's only maybe – it's maybe seven or eight months old, maybe maybe older than that. I don't know. I'll have to ask Tyler, but sent me a little nice. sample of that stuff too. So I'm excited to, to break into that and see what he's got going on. Now, did you say he's from western Kentucky? Yeah. Yeah, kind of kind of western central Kentucky, like um, not too far from uh, Bowling Green area. Oh, okay. So – I gotcha. Yeah. I can't remember what little town he does live in. I used to, I guess I could look at the damn bottle <laughs> and maybe tell you. I don't know if it, I don't know if it says, guys. Yeah. I've had, Hell, I don't know. He's K Kentucky and not the bourbon part of Kentucky. That's where he's at. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a few of those nights, like you was talking about, like, wait, wake up and see the pictures and try to repiece your night together. Oh yeah, uh, I don't remember saying that. I don't remember doing that. Yep. Uh, can't uh, and I I have uh, I'm one of those guys that needs a breathalyzer on his phone too. Like can't wake up early <laughs> enough in the morning, get my phone turned on fast enough to be like, what? I know you did something stupid last night, and you don't fucking remember it. So what was it? Drunk yep. Facebook, huh? Yep, yep. Gets <laughs> me every funny. time. You know, my, my mom always tells me, you know, if you don't remember it, it didn't happen. That's right. <laughs> the problem is everybody else remembers it, and they yeah. keep bringing it up. That, that is the problem. But then, you know, I just revert back to what my mama says, you know. Yep. You don't remember it. It That's didn't happen. Matters. So I'm just like, <laughs> I can't confirm or deny what you're saying. Yeah, I don't it, know why y'all got to make up stuff about me. Yeah. <laughs> it probably happened, but I don't remember it. So I, mean, yep. I accept it, but I 
I don't agree. Yep. Right. <laughs> doesn't sound like me. It does not sound like me. Doesn't seem like something I would do. Sober on a normal day. So, so that apple brandy still yeah. got some of that. Still awesome. A little bit of that. Yeah, there's a there's a new version of that coming out. Uh, should be out in the next month or so. It's a four year old bottled and bond version of it um, that I'm super excited to to get out yep. there. So it'll be at 100 proof, and uh, yeah, we're actually um, we're landing some barrels in your state here shortly too. Really? So, yeah, um, I don't know that we're gonna do full scale distribution in Ohio because the control state issue. Yeah. Um, but for sure, some barrel selections. Nice. Are going in. That's cool. I was lucky enough to try that bottle Sean's got, and I really enjoyed it. I, Good. I'm, I'm an apple, you know, right here in our area of Ohio. We're all about apples around here. So yep. anything yep. apple is always a little near and dear to my heart. So Indiana and Kentucky have that have that in common. We have that history. Or not Indiana and Kentucky. Indiana and Ohio have that in common. We have that history of, uh, of apple brandy production uh, from pre-prohibition. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's apple brandy is the closest thing to my heart because it's, um, it's part of the history here in southern Indiana. But it's also, uh, you know, it's uh, what, part of what I grew up doing because everybody had an apple tree and nobody wanted to pick them up out of the yard. So apples <laughs> no, were fucking nobody. free. But we always picked them up. We were super poor. We yep. pick them up by the bushel, man. And yep. You know, they're fighting yellow jackets. Today, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn right. That's so, one thing I've never messed with is apples, though, as far as brandy goes. Yep. That's my favorite. If, if there, if I was, if I was limited, I couldn't just pick one. But if I was limited to only making two spirits, the apple brandy and absinthe. Really? Yep. I can okay. get down with the apple brandy. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've told my story about absinthe, and I won't bore everybody with it again. Right. <laughs> we don't get along. Uh, <laughs> I'm just sipping on some clear liquor. Um, I actually I got this jar from our buddy Appalachian Hooch. About a year ago, so it's been okay. sitting in my case about a year. Some 130 proof straight corn. That's up there, boy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, if I'm drinking clear corn liquor, I like it hot. So if I'm drinking yeah. brandy, yeah. I like it about 80 to 90 ish, and it depends yeah. on which one it is. Um, I like my peach brandy around 100. You know, it's what's crazy about the uh, the legal side of of uh, distilling. Is so everybody got into these these high proof bourbons a few years ago, right? And they, you get above. Uh, there's some tangential mark, one thirty, whatever they call it, hazmat at that point, right? So everybody was selling these hazmat bourbons, and they're selling like crazy. And uh, we released a hazmat apple brandy because nobody had ever done a hazmat apple brandy. So it was like one forty one point five, and it was apple brandy completely matured in a tequila barrel. And I thought, well, that's not ever like going to go over. We kind of did it as a lark. That shit sold out in three days. The whole barrel was gone in three days. No shit. Yep. So who knew there there was a market for hazmat apple brandy? So I got to make the joke that it's not the 141 part of it does you in. It's the it's the point five. (laughs) (laughs) That's usually what gets me, man. You know, I push myself to that limit, and I know I can have one more. I can always have one more. (laughs) Yeah, big. I can one more. No no problem. Give me one more. (laughs) But you know. one the more, problem, it'll, it'll be yep, all right. Yep. But the problem is, is one's too many and a hundred's not enough. Yeah. Yep. Gets me every time. Yeah. I lose, I lose count somewhere in there. Um. So I, I, re, I restart the count, and it usually doesn't end well. So. No, that's uh, that's yep. that's the way it goes. That's for sure. Absolutely. I I ran into that problem last night. We, were, you know, that pay bar there at the place we rented to show this film, and uh, 
So I was ordering, uh, this is down at Bourbon's Bistro in Louisville, Kentucky, and a good friend of ours, uh, Jason Bronner, owns it. He's got his own uh, private brand uh, called Buzzature City. Resources from MGP, and then he puts it in a secondary barrel and ages different finishes and stuff. And uh, so I was ordering that, and I forgot that it was it was overproof. So I was ordering doubles, and I had three or four of those. And then, you know, the bartenders <laughs> were being tipped pretty well. And then by the time I got the last one, my wife's like, all right, you're only getting a single this time. because I And she knows, like, when I'm getting out of hand. She's trying to control it. she got to get me back home. So she goes and orders, and she comes back with a single but apparently everybody's treated the bartender so well that that single was a full Glen Karen of that <laughs> shit. So it looked like a triple. And, uh, the last, last piece of it that I remember was being in the alleyway. And, uh, my buddy Patrick had a, a bottle of, um, Oh, I can't even think of the name of, but it's a, it's a, uh, bloody butcher, uh, white corn whiskey. And I remember drinking out of the bottle and then I, everything after that was a blur. Uh, I woke up this morning. I found the bottle in the car, and I didn't remember. I was like, "Where the fuck did this come from? Did I like? Did I like steal a bottle from somebody randomly?" <laughs> so, yeah, I feel you, man. I feel you. Remember what Mama said. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so yeah, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Are you, um, are you are you from French Lake, Indiana? So I'm from a, a little bitty town, um, just about 30 minutes north of Louisville, Kentucky, called Pekin, Indiana. Uh, the only real claim to fame that we have is that we have the longest consecutively celebrated Fourth of July uh, celebration in the United States. Um, so we started celebrating in 1830, so it's not the first or the earliest, but it, it's been consistently celebrated every year since 1830, which really means that people like to drink a lot and set shit on fire is what it breaks down to. But uh, <laughs> it's my kind of people. Right. So <laughs> I am uh, I'm a first first generation Hoosier. The rest of my family are all from Kentucky, uh, from around Greensburg and, and uh, down around Manchester, Oneida area. And uh, so growing up, we had a my grandparents had bought a tobacco farm here in Pekin. Uh, little 40 acre farm and we raised tobacco and we made moonshine uh, on the side and really the, the tobacco and the moonshine was really just enough to pay property taxes and pay for Christmas and have some emergency money and stuff like that so I, I grew up around it um, you know I remember being around stills when I was three four years old uh, it wasn't anything romantic as far as I was concerned obviously at that age it was uh, it was like a tractors another piece of farm equipment it was one of those things where Look, there's a, there's the reason why we can't go do fun shit on the weekends because instead here's what we're gonna be doing. So, um, so my grandpa and my dad, they well, my grandpa uh, on on my mom's side and my dad, they both made a little bit, a lot of a lot of brandy and a lot of uh, basically you know sugar shine, uh, nothing nothing fancy and mostly you know just to sell again to people you know around the holidays and stuff, get some extra money coming in. Um, and I got tangentially interested when I was maybe about 15 or so for obvious reasons. I had parents that were uh, cool enough that they would let me do things, but it had to happen at the house, right? They were the, yep. they were the cool parents. Like you can have your friends over and you can do silly shit as long as their parents are okay with it, but I'm going to wake you up at seven o'clock in the morning and you're going to go cut tobacco <laughs> or cut wood or whatever we're doing, yep. regardless of how you feel. So dad and grandpa helped me put together a little 10 gallon pot. Um, I actually still have it. It's a, uh, it's an old, uh, antique stainless steel coffee dispenser from um, Fort Knox, Kentucky nice. uh, that we rigged together and put a little stainless uh, stock pot on for a thump barrel and all that stuff. And then they refused to tell me how to do anything. So I knew the <laughs> stuff I'd help them with, but I didn't know anything different than that. 
And honestly, I don't know it's that they refused to tell me how to do anything. I think it's just that like that was their limitation, right? We just yeah. they weren't in, into it from that perspective. But the rules were don't blow your ass up in the backyard and bring us something when it's worth drinking. And uh, <laughs> that kind of got me started. And then when I was in my 20s, I switched the tobacco farm over to a uh, basically an organic produce farm. But the real uh, thing that I was interested in was plant breeding. Uh, plant breeding open pollinated uh, vegetables and grains uh, for low input systems, which of course nobody in the Ohio Valley 12 years ago gave a shit about at all. Uh, so it's a little hard to make any money or get anybody to, you know, grow these things or buy this weird produce at the farmer's market and can't make any money at the farmer's market anyways, because you know, your, your, your neighbor Joe pulls in with a trunk full of tomatoes and just gives them away. So you start thinking, you know, distilling is agrarian uh, everything, everything with distillation is related to agriculture. So if you've got these weird corn varieties that you've bred yourself or that you've pulled out of the USDA seed bank or wherever you got them from traded for whatever, well, what happens when I run it through still, does it affect things? Does it change things? And then that's what got me really kind of into it. And by the time I was 27, I had a 150 gallon, uh, dairy tank, dairy stirator sitting in the backyard, uh, that I was, I was doing some distilling on and my wife. This was right when moonshiners got big when I got to that point, uh, okay. that first that first season. And so we'd go to parties and stuff, and jars would come back around at, from people that should not have known who I was or what I was doing, but they knew who I was and what I was doing. And my wife was like, listen, you, you've got to go get a fucking job doing this. You can't keep, yeah. you can't keep doing this. So that, um, that pushed me into, at the time, Indiana didn't have uh, a craft distilling license. There was, there was one craft distiller in the state who somehow got licensed for brandy in the early 2000s and nobody else ever did. Um, but they were talking about adding a, a artisan distiller, uh, farm distiller license at the time, but there were no distilleries open. So I basically went and looked for every distillery that was opening in Louisville, Kentucky, and I wrote the world's worst resume and uh, kept sending them out until somebody was dumb enough to hire me. <laughs> and it just so happened to be Copper and Kings. Um, got on there, worked there for two years. Uh, basically headed up the absinthe program, um, as well as, uh, the Butchertown brandy, which is the overproof grape brandy was kind of my baby. Uh, hey, it's somebody else's dog for once. not mine. Oh, Thank yeah. God. <laughs> Cujo over there or what? Right? Yeah. She's a, she's a peach schnapps drinker. Yeah, she is. <laughs> That's peaches. <laughs> so that, that, that got me in the, in the legal industry. And it was, it was interesting because, uh, the other guy they hired as a distiller, um, he was a winemaker. But I was okay. the only one in the building with any distilling experience short of their consultant that they had. And the consultant that they had was a good guy, but he'd only ever worked for um, Barton, the 1792 distillery. So he didn't know anything about pot stills, batch distillation, brandy. And, I mean, he and I, we're good friends now, but when I was working there, we are fucking every day, <laughs> all day long. And they literally, <clears throat> they turned the keys loose to me and the other guy, and they said, well, Here's a thousand gallon pot. And here's a 750 gallon pot. Uh, there's a boiler that you never worked with before. Go figure it out and don't blow anything up. And uh, I knew pretty quick that I wanted to get out of Louisville. I want to get back on on my side of the river, what I call the right side of the river, because uh, I knew a lot of the distilling history over here. So luckily in 2013, 2014, they passed that uh, farm distilling law. And by 2015, there were several craft distilleries opening up in the state of Indiana. And uh, through Lisa Wicker of Widow Jane, he used to work down at um, uh, Limestone Branch, and then Steve mm -hmm. Beam at Limestone Branch. Uh, I found out about this opportunity over at Prince Lick and got hired on over there in the very early stages. And 
basically laid out all the mash bills, all the distillation protocols, all the botanical spirits. I mean, everything there is kind of, uh, if I didn't, if I didn't conceptualize it from the start, somebody mentioned it and then I built it basically. Um, so, and distillation is my, my absolute passion. It's so it's, I tell people all the time, it's the only thing. So what I'm fucking good at it. It's either this or I'm digging ditches and I don't want to dig ditches. So yeah, you know, I ain't got nothing else. So <laughs> I'm not going for digging ditches anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I'm not, uh, if I'm not distilling, I'm probably thinking about distilling, writing about distilling, interviewing people about distilling, filming something about distilling, reenacting distilling or recovering from a hangover. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> I say, you um, <laughs> if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. So, yeah, that's, that's most, that's mostly true. Um, but you know, I, as a, I'll say this as a, as a home distiller at heart, absolutely. And I always will be the frustrations of being in a legal distillery when it comes to equipment malfunction, uh, and unnecessary design bullshit start that becomes work sometimes, right? Like the more, Oh yeah, there's definitely work in there. <laughs> yeah. The more, the more intricate those systems are and the more fucked up they are, the more problems you're going to have. Right. You wouldn't be talking about boilers, would you? Boilers, chillers, all that stuff, man. It's always like, here's, I'll give you a good example because I think this is something like home distillers that want to become legal distillers. And I'm all for that. That's one reason why I'm such a big supporter of home distillation. So people don't, don't think about those things. And so if you go into a commercial distillery and you've never designed one before, you've never worked in one before, you've only ever worked at home, like you're probably going to overlook some things that some engineering guys do and not, uh, not have a whole lot to say about it, or maybe you don't own the place and you don't feel like you should say anything. So we had a, um, an engineer that did our system and he put in a bunch of automation. Uh, now the automation doesn't control any of the cuts or any of that stuff. That's mm-hmm. all sensory. That's me doing it all day long, but we've got a glycol chiller and then a 2,500 gallon cold water tank. That's got a glycol jacket on it. And then the six fermenters have glycol jackets. Well, all the cold water piping, he put, uh, I don't even remember what the hell they're called, but automated valving in there where it's on off. Right. But everything's up, you know, 25 feet up in the air. You can't tell if one of those fucking sensors has gone out on one of those things until it's too late and shit's getting hot. Right. They did the same thing on the steam lines for the stills. So he just put these automated valves on the steam lines. And now I got him to switch one out on the second still that we put in to where it was manual, you know, just turn the steam on. Uh, but I've literally spent the past year and a half just going through and kicking all that shit out of the system and getting rid of it because it's, it's, it's cold water. It's on or off guys. There's not, <laughs> you don't need to control it like that, except on the D flag and on the D flag, honestly, I'll climb the ladder and I'll put a fucking manual needle valve on it. Yeah. And then I'll put a piece of PEX hose where I can actually see the water flow because I'd rather be able to see that water flow myself than have to look at a screen and go, well, maybe it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. <laughs> so sometimes simpler is better. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Oh, I'm all for simple. Yep. Simple shit. I mean, but you know, once you go bigger like that, you can't. You got to go away from it. I guess. I mean, I think I think there's ways to there's ways there's ways to do it. The the chiller is is a big issue because I'm not a, a chiller engineer, obviously. And so when something goes wrong with the chiller, you know, I mean, what am I going to do about it? Like it's either it's either low on uh, on glycol, which I can I can see and I can fix that problem. But if it's anything more than that, fucking calling a guy, right? And yeah. if you're in if you're in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, we've got great contractors. But the thing with the contractors is this is all on the job training for them too, because none of them have ever built a distillery or maintained a distillery. So 
you know, the boiler guy's like, well, you guys have so many problems with your boiler because you have to, because you turn it on and off. Boilers want to run all the time. I'm like, listen, I know what you're saying, but these are batch systems. It's not running all the fucking time. That's just the way it is. Right. Uh, and I can't do anything about that. I can't just turn the steam on, run the natural gas for no damn reason. You have to, you have to have a reason to have it on. So. Huh. And yeah, you are. So how far do you live from where you work? Uh, it's right at an hour, right oh, at an okay. hour. Yeah. It's about an hour uh, directly due West of here, um, which is a, a good little drive, but I like it. It gives me time. Uh, I don't, I don't answer my phone when I drive. Uh, that that hour is my time, and uh, so I don't I don't bother to answer my phone if I'm driving. I'm not calling anybody. I'm listening to podcasts or music, and uh, either getting ready for the day and getting everything out of my head from the day before, or coming home and not thinking about anything that happened at work. Right? That's my my time to myself, basically. Except I hired dad about two years ago, and uh, I'm pretty sure my dad has talked more on the car drives in the past two years than he talked to me my whole fucking life. And I love him, but there's sometimes I just want to be like, do you ever shut up just for a little while? Just for a little while. Breathe, dad, breathe. (laughs) So was he big into this when he was younger, or was that kind of like a... More of a... I mean, he liked to drink, right? That's okay. so he, he'd make stuff because he liked to drink it. And then obviously the tax money, right. uh, it's funny to sell something illegal uh, that's not tax paid in order to basically pay taxes. Yeah. Right. But that was really the, the main uh, impetus of, of all that home distilling that was going on in the generations before me. Um, and we, we have it, I'm sure in my family going way back. I, uh, I haven't researched it as much as I should have. And I don't, we don't use it as part of the story at Spirits of French Lick. Um, it's not something I've ever really played off of because everybody and their brother does it. I mean, you yeah. know, and I'll, I'll, you guys know this as uh, as Americans and, and everybody having, you know, a lot of ancestry from Europe. Uh, if you can't find a distiller in your family, something's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. There should be a distiller in your family somewhere. Everybody's got yeah. one. So. Especially if your family come over and they settled in the Appalachia area, mm-hmm. you know, anywhere over here, then. Yeah. Or even, you know, for us, like here in Southern Indiana, like I said, I'm first generation Hoosier, but I, I love the distilling and the uh, history of the area where I'm at, what was called the Black Forest of Southern Indiana, which was a six county region that had over 155 legal operating distilleries in the 1800s up to prohibition. Um, and the reason for that is because everybody, not everybody, but the vast majority of people that settled here early on, they were all of uh, German ancestry from the Black Forest of Germany, and they stopped here because it looks like the Black Forest region of Germany. Um, hmm. And because of that, pretty much everybody's family that I've ever researched around here, even the uh, even the ones that would, would they get seriously pissed off when you mention they had someone in their family that distilled because they'll deny it, right? Yeah. Nobody in my family would. Well, that's weird because I have the uh, tax records, you know, <laughs> for that person right here. So, um, but yeah, you can't. Um, I'll give you an example of that within. 10 miles of my house, I could probably point out four, maybe five old distillery sites that I know of just within this one little area. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody knows about it. I'm the only one seem to be, as far as I know, I'm the only distilling historian in the state of Indiana. I don't know of anybody else doing it. I mostly focus on the Southern part of the state because Mm -hmm. uh, there's a a distinct cultural difference between Northern Indiana and Southern Indiana. So we call a, if you, if you ask somebody if they're from Indiana and they're from Southern Indiana, they don't say I'm from Indiana. They say I'm from Southern Indiana. They don't say <laughs> Indiana. 
Yeah, there's, uh, there's definitely a big a big difference from Southern Ohio to oh, Northern yeah. Ohio yeah. around here. Yeah, we uh, tell people there ain't no such thing as Southern Indiana. It's uh, it's Hoosier occupied Northern Kentucky until you get you uh, until you get uh, north of Columbus, Indiana, and yeah. then it then it switches over to Canada. I was up in the, in the Toledo area once, and everybody up there sounds Canadian, and they mm-hmm. all tell me I sound like straight uh, redneck, you know. And you say hey. y'all one time around them, and Yep. <laughs> and they, they don't let you well, forget it. And it's and funny, yep. too, because everybody is like, you know, where we're at, they say it's flat. Right. But when you go up there, it's yeah. flat. Like here, it's like long, rolling hills, you know? Yeah. I, was, I was joking with Caleb McCaukey. <laughs> I think it was the winter before last. We did a, uh, a Groot project, a stone beer project, where we were making stone beer the old-fashioned way by boiling it with rocks and using botanicals, and then we were distilling it. So we went up to... Uh, to Sugar Creek, which is in Lebanon, Indiana. And it's not that far north. It's up around Indianapolis. But it was the middle of the winter. It was January. And uh, I had never noticed. So one of the things we do with, with stone beer is you use um, juniper branches as a filter in the bottom of your match tun, right? And uh, so we don't have juniper around here, so we use red cedar because it's a variety of juniper. And uh, down here in southern Indiana, the, the red cedars get great big, real tall, right? Yeah. But I'd never noticed up there until the middle of winter. Like, they only get, you know, 10 feet tall because it's fucking cold as fuck in the winter time, right? They're trying to stay close to the ground, I guess. I don't know, but I, I, I never noticed that until we were up there. It was like 10 degrees out that day. It was it was ridiculous. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I watched one of your past uh, um, one of your guys' podcasts and I heard something about you being – so were you – you weren't – were you invited to be on Moonshiners at one point in time? Yes, a couple different times. Um, so, ironically, Tyler and I – so I've known I've known Tyler since before he was on the show. Um, we both got invited on at the same time. And we, we were talking about this the other day. It's funny how that worked out with different paths. You know, he took the path and ended up on the show and did mm-hmm. – did well with it, honestly, and, and you guys know this. There, there are very few people on that show who can take that opportunity, get out of the show, and go do something with it. And he's one of the few that has done it. Yeah, right. Versus me, who said no, I'm not fucking doing that, and then you know, found my success elsewhere. Obviously, my name is not anywhere near as well known as what I think his is because he has the music thing behind him and all that stuff too. Uh, but yes, I was invited to be on the show several different times. Um, and then when I didn't end up going on the show over the years, started noticing that a lot of my research from my blog ended up on the show with no fucking credit. Yeah. And then that became a pretty major issue over time as well. So I, uh, I have, I definitely have my, um, my thoughts about the show and most of them, uh, not, not, the, not most of the people on the show, especially the master distiller show. I think there's been some damn good people on there. Uh, but I definitely have my thoughts about that company for sure. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. We've talked a little bit about that before. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, but listen, they, you know, they, 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 I'll give you, here's here's an example of what pisses me off. All right. And I understand it's entertainment and all that stuff. And I don't care if they fake stuff and all that, that's fine. Uh, what pisses me off is, Let's say, for example, the, the episode about rye whiskey, Revolution Rye, whatever they ended up calling it. There's Here's all this great history about Pennsylvania rye distilling, mm-hmm. how it was done, 
uh, Monogahela style rye, uh, the three chamber, which schematics are available for uh, all over the place. If you look for them for even a minute and they delivered the biggest steaming pile of dog shit they possibly could. As far as the history went, they made a still that was not anything resembling a three chamber. Matter of fact, they made a still that if somebody tries to make that same design at home, and they try to run that thing off. If they read an article and they realize that the three chambers a rapid fire system, you guys know what happens to hot copper when you throw something cold in it and it gets vapor locked. Oh yeah. That's a good way to get somebody really hurt bad right there. <laughs> and if nothing else, they've spent, they've wasted a lot of money. That's the kind of stuff that makes me mad about the show. Like if you're going to do the history and you're going to do, you know, all the, all the ins and outs of it and make it entertaining. You don't have to make shit up, right? You yeah. just tell the actual history. Yep. I agree. But it's, you know, I mean, like you said, it's it's entertainment, I guess they can call it well. Right. What, what's entertainment is me just yelling at my TV for an hour because I'm too stupid to stop watching the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that first though that you ran, do you still have that? You got it set up somewhere? So I, I still have it. Um, it's actually going to end up uh, more than likely in a, uh, uh, a little museum thing that we have going on over at um uh, spring mill state park so uh we're we're in the process of uh restoring the old daisy spring mill distillery over there which operated from 1823 to 1886 and uh it'll be the only the only state-owned distillery in the united states and they'll be there to make money for the park itself uh making historic style spirits but we're also incorporating part of the old building which is the original distillery building it's going to be a museum for kind of southern indiana distillation so super cool yeah the history about this stuff man that's what i enjoy you know i'm not exactly a super smart guy but just was it last summer i found out that here in clark county and i think miami where uh indian creek's at yep um you know there there was a lot of mills yeah back way back in the day and distilleries yeah i didn't i had no fucking clue and then just after that, we went out to Indian Creek, met them, and yep. wound up grabbing a few things from there to put stuff in. But that's you know, yeah. beside the yeah. point. <laughs> pretty much, uh, pretty much anywhere in the Western Frontier where you would have had mills, you had a distillery because that was you know we have this convoluted idea of history where you read and you know I don't know how much Ohio State history you get in middle school there, but Indiana it's literally like six weeks. Which what the fuck are you going to touch on for six weeks, right? But right. the story is always, well, the settlers needed a place to grind their grain. They knew yeah. how to make stump mills, guys. Pretty much everybody that was a farmer knew how to make a mill and get their grain ground. The, the, the mills the mills existed pretty much as trading posts and, and agricultural service centers, you know, and it was a place for people to go and get their news. And it was also the only source of bringing in actual money into the community. And that money was coming from, uh, whiskey and then the pork that was raised off of whiskey and then whatever little bit of flour they were shipping out as well. Cause that, that's always the one that always makes me laugh too. Yeah. They were, they were shipping. Mostly it was flour. They were shipping downstream bullshit. There's mills in the South too, guys. They weren't, that's right. not really what was happening. Sorry. I'm not laughing at you. My dog is over here trying to scratch her back on, on a chair and she's dragging it. <laughs> Old peaches. <laughs> yeah. Right. So what's your biggest, what do you consider your biggest accomplishment in this business? I, I don't, I don't honestly know. I, I, 
the thing that I like the most, the thing I guess I'm most proud of is, is just helping other people out with it. I mean, I can do stuff and, you know, we win awards and sometimes those things matter. Sometimes they don't matter that much as long as it's, as long as it's selling right. And there's demand for it. Yeah. Um, I think, so part of it's helping a lot of other craft distillers get up and going, encouraging a lot of home distillers, helping out anybody a can with questions and stuff like that. And then there is a little part of it that's uh, probably a little bit ego driven. But, you know, when I left Copper and Kings, the owner said, you know, none of this shit happened in Indiana and you don't have a chance and everybody's going to think it's MGP and all that stuff. And I, there's just part of me that's a little bit like, you know, fuck you. We fucking made it work, didn't we? Right. So um, I think right now the big one is, again, the spring mill thing, because it's going to be cool for. For home distillers, it's going to be cool for people with moonshiners in their family. It's going to be cool for people that had, you know, legal distillers in their family. And it'll work as a, either a starting point or an ending point for people coming into southern Indiana to visit those distilleries, right? Kind of like a, uh, you know, a bourbon trail, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, you wouldn't have the whole history of uh, what happens with distillation in Indiana if you don't either start there or end there. And I always say there's no reason, uh, no reason Louisville should be getting all that money uh itself if we can get even 10 20 percent of the people that come to louisville for bourbon tourism across that bridge and come over here they've got the expendable income and the next best place for their money other than their wallets and our wallet so right oh uh, yeah so <clears throat> as far as your you guys at uh, spirits of french lick do you guys double distill more or do you guys run stuff through plates or how you know just yeah, so so I'm I'm a, a huge proponent of the pot still. Um, that's that's my absolute love and passion is the pot still and all the various modifications you can do to pot stills. Uh, I'm huge on double pot still distillation on a lot of things, particularly uh, actual grain whiskeys and brandies. Um, I love just straight double pot still for that. So all the bourbons are always 100% double pot distilled. And so when I say double pot distilled, stripping run, no cuts, collect everything, 60, 70 proof put all that back into the doubling still run it off in pot still mode and make your cuts. And, uh, so we do, we do things a little differently. I think than a lot of other even pot still distillers do it's a little more, um, German slash cognac influence. So we'll take a, a, a small fours cut. Then we'll take our heads. Um, if we're, if we're running whiskey, we'll rerun the heads and the stripping still for the next five runs. Cause that acetylaldehyde, F elastate, it all breaks down with heat cycling. Yeah. Or you can even, a lot of people know this, you can feed it back to your mash too. The yeast will break down out of heights. Um, and it also raises your ABV in your mash. Um, okay. We don't ever rerun that stuff uh, on on brandy. We always keep the brandy clean. Um, then we'll do our hearts cut. So for us, most of the time on hearts, on a double pot still, the hearts are probably going to start around 158 or so. Uh, we'll run down to between 88 and 92 um maybe 94 sometimes uh for for our our actual hearts uh depending on whether or not we're making a brown spirit so if we're making a bourbon i'll drop in the tails a little further because that's the you kind of need that in the barrel, the barrel to esterify over time uh if we're making a white spirit obviously as clean as we can get it you know so we may even stop a distillation at 100 proof or even even higher sometimes uh for some of the clear stuff um then we collect our tails we run our tails down to uh, about 20 proof and uh, we rerun that in every single doubling run that we do. If we're running Lee Sinclair 50 times that year, we're rerunning those tails 50 times. It's where a lot of your consistency, a lot of your flavor comes from, a lot of your mouthfeel, those long chain fatty acids that are going to esterify during distilling and also in the barrel. And then for some products, we put another cut in there, which is sweet water, which um, is basically anything 15 proof and down. So we'll usually go down to like 10 roughly. And uh, what you're really collecting there are the essential oils of the raw material that you started with. 
Uh, and so we'll do one or two things with that. We'll either use it to proof down before we go into the barrel. And we don't do this with every product, just certain ones. Or we'll actually put that in its own barrel and age it alongside the whiskey or the brandy uh, until it's time to pull that out and get it ready to bottle. And then we actually use that to help start proofing things down with. Interesting. So um, we do we do some rectification. Um, yeah. I like uh, I like rectification as far as uh, you know just running a deflamator with no plates on um, grain whiskeys on uh, for a white whiskey in particular. Uh, just raising the proof up to, to maybe where your average of your hearts instead of being 135 is 145 to 150. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, you guys have probably seen this too now that some of the home distillers are getting more into uh, into actually using grain as opposed to doing sugar shine. You know, there's a big difference in the flavor of a true corn whiskey and a sugar yeah. shine whiskey. And um, unless you grew up with that, that real heavy corn flavor from a double pot distilled still, it's not as accessible to a lot of people as what a sugar shine can be. Right. Uh, but if you can bump the proof on it about 10 proof uh, during the run, it changes that product a hundred percent makes it, makes it a little lighter, a little more linear, but it becomes more focused on the positive flavor attributes that you actually want to pull off. It makes it a whole lot more palatable. Um, we do a little bit of single pass distillation uh, with, with four plates. So, I'll typically, um, if we're going to run apple brandy, I'll take maybe maybe 600 gallons of, of apple wine and put it into the 650-gallon still, which is a, a pot hybrid with four plates on it. And uh, we'll run that off and try to hold our proof at like 120. So we're sort of uh, imitating uh, northern France uh, with Calvados uh, with single pass. And then that shit's going to set in barrels for 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 years. It's super heavy-bodied. Um, super rich and it'll be it'll be great stuff but it, it needs its time for sure so what what is the benefit of re or double distillation as opposed to just running a thumper right so that, that's a good question that's one uh, so i've been you've probably seen i've been doing these videos here lately um uh, the one piece at a time distilling institute and that's really just about my philosophy on distillation in general so for me i i absolutely love a thumper uh, when it comes to, let's say, a sugar shine, um, I think that, that a lot of times that you pay attention to what you're doing with a thumper, you you really know what you're doing with your cuts, etc. You can make great product with sugar shine. Even when I do, uh, a lot of times if I run a sugar shine with a you know a pot and a thumper, I'll do light cuts there, and then I'll rerun it in another pot still as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just that's just my style. I, I like that. I, you get a, a nicer, neater, cleaner product with better cuts off of it. Um, so the difference for me with, with double pot still versus a thumper with a thumper, you can get a lot more flavor and you'll hear people say that all the time. And that's true. But the thing that nobody ever talks about is are those flavors positive or are they negative? Because flavor can be, you know, you got good flavors and bad flavors, right? Mm -hmm. um, a thumper can be a little dirtier distillation. And you guys know, you can, you can very easily start smearing things together. Um, the other thing that you're doing is you got to remember that even though you are technically to some extent, double pot stilling, depending on what you load into that thumper as well, whether you're doing mash, you're actually creating some more heads coming back out and you're only getting a, you know, a single distillation off that very first fraction coming off, right. Versus a full double distillation. Um, it has its uses for sure. Absolutely. And again, I think with sugar shine in particular, that's, that's really where it shines. Uh, and with even botanical distillations, it's where it shines with double pot. Still, what I like about it is the ability to be super precise with your cuts. Uh, you know, to be able to not only on the stripping still be able to collect everything, not have to make any cuts. We take that down to 20 proof as well. 
we're collecting you know as much of that stuff as we can beautiful thing about pot still distillation is it's inefficient you're distilling almost as much water as you are ethanol and the water is what's carrying the flavor it's not the right. ethanol so being able to capture that rectify that run it through a longer process as well so uh, the thing about distilling in particular is everything is heat sensitive so what you're really doing is trying to create maintain flavors throughout the entire process from fermentation to distillation and then on the maturation if you go into a barrel and the the opportunities to do that to get esterification so breakdown of long chain fatty acids into esters and phenols the flavors that you want in your whiskey it's all about time spent under heat and the more time that's spent under heat the more those processes you actually allow to happen uh during the distillation so having that full double pot still distillation taking it through all that time under heat you're able to break down more of those things and get more of those unique flavor profiles coming back off the still and then have a very clear view of what do I want to keep? What do I not want to keep? Right. All the way down to one of the things that we do at spirits of French lick, which is a little odd. If I'm running through the hearts, you know, everybody makes their cuts. They go in their hearts. They say, all right, I'm not going back out of this until I get down to my tails. We there's, there's certain products that we will cut portions of the hearts out of because there's flavors that we don't want in there. So. Hmm. Interesting. Not much. It may only be, you know, yeah. a couple proof gallons, but you know, okay. we, there's, there's certainly, uh, there's some tricks with buckwheat and kasha in particular uh, that I've had to figure out the hard way. So, <laughs> well, that buckwheat bourbon you have or you made, well, you give me. Uh, well, back when I brought it, still, man, that was some good stuff. You're like gonna have that. to. I'll have to get you a bottle of the of of it, the the bottled and bond one. <clears throat> it's the it's the weirdest bourbon that we make. And I thought for so that one was not my idea. That was the owner. He came up okay. with that, but then I wrote the mash bill, right? And it's a weird mash bill. Um, it's got a lot of toasted buckwheat in it too, but I hated that shit coming off the still. I couldn't stand it. Like, you really? know, there wasn't anything wrong with it. Just the flavor profile was not my thing. And that's fine. Yeah. Sometimes you deal with that and you go on about your day. Uh, and then when it went into the barrel for the first three years, I still hated it. Um, and I thought, <laughs> man, there's no way we're getting like none of the hardcore bourbon drinkers are going to buy this stuff. And then like magic, it got to four years old and, something changed that last maybe three months leading up to it being four years old. And it changed in such a way that it's got almost like this chocolate Reese's pieces thing going Ooh, on. Good. Um, and, and we, I think that first year we only made 12 barrels of it and it's gone. It's sold out. Um, and I've got, I've got some sitting in tanks at work right now, but the problem is we can't get bottles. So Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a continuing fight right there, just getting bottles and barrels in right now. So are bottles hard to get, all well, bottles of all kinds hard to get right now? Or Yeah, yeah, man, it's it's become a real issue because a lot of them, you know, uh, first of all, so we, we've, I've always, the what's called the Arizona bottle, the big, tall, heavy base bottle. Mm -hmm. I, I love those, and I've, I've stuck with those since Copper and Kings because this one? Here's, here's a fun trick for, for home distillers that go into the legal industry. Make your bottle tall. Because if you make it tall, the liquor store doesn't have a choice but to put it on the top shelf. It can't go anywhere else. Go look <laughs> at the shelves in the liquor stores. It won't fit anywhere else in most of them. Um, Damn, the problem that's is, a good idea. Yeah, everybody else caught on to that and started using Arizona bottles. So that made a <laughs> shortage. And then you got all this Ukraine-Russia shit going on. Well, a lot of your bottles, a lot of your glass manufacturers are in Europe. And all that gas to fire up the bottles comes out of Russia. And Russia just basically said, fuck you. <laughs> so, you know, now there's a huge bottle shortage. Yeah, the last distillery I was at, he said, man, I can get bottles, but they're not the same every time it's a different type of bottle. 
Yep. It's like, man, I, you know, I like to keep mine in the same bottle, you know, yep. quart jars or, or, you know, little, little jars. And, yep. and he's like, man, I just, I'm at the mercy of what they have. So I'm what just bottling and what I can get. Yeah. Yep. And the, the other problem that you'll have too, and a lot, a lot of, uh, and again, these are things, I think this is a good show to have those conversations, you know, me coming from a home distilling background, doing a legal thing and, and uh, just letting home distillers that want to get in this industry know a few things. But, you know, the other side of that is you, you, as a distillery, you probably buy in your labels ahead of time, right? And when we buy labels, we buy thousands of dollars worth of labels. So we've got multiple products and they're, they're all selling well. Well, if you can't get that same bottle, that label wasn't designed for any other bottle. And even yeah. if it'll go on another bottle, it ain't going to look right. I never really thought of that. Mm-hmm. So you get you get fucked both ways. <laughs> you know, there's no there's no other way around it. It's either yeah, I can find bottles, but the label's gonna look shitty with it, which some people don't care, but you know, you should. It's gonna be, you know, I, I can tell you this, uh the big places that distribute the Kroger's of the world, they notice when that shit changes. I'll tell you yeah. that right now. And well, you notice, you know, it's your bottle yeah. and it doesn't look right, and you just you know deep down inside, like, man, I do not want to send this out, but you know, you're between a rock and a hard place. What are you going to do? Absolutely. Well, and that's like what the woman was telling me a while back. You know, when, when you walk into a liquor store, if you see it and it looks good to you, it, it's appealing. You know, yep. you're not going to walk in and buy something that looks fucking stupid. Yep. Well, you know, you, the first thing you buy with is your eyes. You know, yep. you buy with Absolutely. your eyes first. And, if, and if, with if as, much, pretty. as much brown spirit that's out there too, guys, especially bourbon and rye right now. Ooh. You've got exactly 1.5 seconds to get their attention because otherwise, what do they give a shit about some little distillery out of Southern Indiana when there's 3000 other bourbons in that aisle, right? They better have something about that label and the bottle and the way it sets up that makes it look enticing and makes you want to go back and look at it. Right. And the trick to to that is if you can get them to look at it for more than 1.5 seconds and you can get them to pick the bottle up 90% of the time, if they pick that bottle up, they're buying it. Unless they're me and they're just dicks and they're looking at labels being like, where was this actually fucking distilled at? So. <laughs> you know, that's what blows my mind, though, about Indian Creek, because they only sell from the location that. Yep. You know, I will tell you, that's one of the things I'm excited about uh, in general. There's two things. So with home distillers, and I wrote an article about this recently, you know, all the craft distillers that are doing well now, probably 90% of us, you know, when craft first started, there was a lot of bad stuff out there. And that's not to say there's not bad stuff out there now, too. But a lot of those guys didn't have any background in distilling. Yeah. So the ones that survived that got good at distilling, right? Mm-hmm. The ones that came into it, the next generation, which is the generation that I'm part of, almost 90% of us were all home distillers or moonshiners, right? So we had some background with it. And so we all came up with a lot of innovative stuff. But at first, the, the mainstream industry was like, well, what the fuck is that, right? Because they, they don't understand it, right? Especially the prototypical Kentucky bourbon drinker, you know, who thinks bourbon can only be made in Kentucky or whatever. Um, they didn't get it, but it caught on and it worked and we've got their attention now. Well, this next generation that's coming in are going to be the guys that are doing home distillers doing all kinds of crazy, innovative stuff. Sean, you're making all kinds of cool fucking equipment that nobody else out there has. And you don't see that stuff in big commercial distilleries. There are some, some craft distilleries running some cool stuff, right? Not, not that many of them and not on, not on a scale, not on that kind of scale. Right. I mean, most of them are going to be a couple hundred gallons capacity at the most versus, yeah. Even like our place, you know, where it's a, a 1200 gallon stripping still and, you know, 650 and 350 gallon doubling stills. Um, so that's exciting. But the other thing that's exciting to me is that the people are supporting 
the odd stuff. People are getting bored with the stuff that's out there, right? And we don't have to have those dedicated Kentucky bourbon drinkers to be able to make a living because now people are exploring flavors. They're finding new things. They're finding cool things. And if we've got all these cool gadgets and all this really cool methodology that we've worked out at home, if we can scale that shit up, we can, we can do things that you won't be able to keep up with. But you also don't have to compete with those big guys necessarily either because it's coming down to pretty much every – Every town of any size is going to have a craft distillery. And if craft distillers are smart, they'll play to the region that they're in. They'll play to the history that they have. They'll have at least one product that's based off the shit that grows there locally. That's part of the local uh, food culture, part of yep. local agriculture. And even better than that, like the Indian Creek thing, if you can get a distillery at a tourist attraction, that's the trick, right? To where you don't even have to worry about distribution. You know, yes. you, know you think about some of the, some of the, the different resorts and stuff that you guys probably have in Ohio, or like you guys probably have lakes and stuff like that. Right. And oh, yeah. how many people yeah. go visit those lakes, you know, well, and, they're, and they're right up the road from a small, you know, Kaiser yep. Lake. Been, yep. 10 minutes, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe if that, but yep. uh, yeah, man, they're, and I don't, we don't have a whole lot of distilleries around here, but the ones we do, that is probably the coolest one in my opinion. Yeah. Um, it was beautiful. Just Indian Creek, it was beautiful yeah. out there. Yep. They it's had a gazebo amazing. set up, and you know, they had this beautiful uh, creek running through it. And, and, and there's two stills, man. Those things are awesome. Yeah. Well, and the opportunity, the other opportunity that the home distillers that become craft distillers have on hand as well, that's not been as exploited as what it should be uh, for cash flow. Because bear in mind, like at Spirits of French Lake, they had the winery there. So the wine really funded everything until the distillery got going. But we're See, also I didn't in know that. Yeah. Yeah. So they've had the winery since 96. Uh, but we're also in a resort town. You've got the hotel and casino right there. You've got the dome. You've got all that history that we can play off. So we have a lot of visitors that come through. But one of the other things that doesn't get exploited nearly enough, now everybody and their brother is in the home distilling. And they should be, especially with the hardest things in this country you're getting. People better be doing a lot yeah. more self-sufficient stuff one way or the other. Uh, and making sugar shine is fine. And I love sugar shine, but learn how to make stuff from raw material, too, so that when shit gets real bad, you can still make something. You'll need it. Yeah, exactly. But the other side of that is if you go into the craft distilling industry, set your distillery up where you can do education because they're, you know, they sell beaver stills on walmart.com and home depot.com guys, right? People want to know how to do this shit and they don't have anywhere really to go. There's maybe three or four distilleries in the U S that offer education. There's moonshine university that offers some amount of education, but it's all catered towards much larger clients and, and stuff like that. So there's a real opportunity to educate home distillers and and people, you guys know this, you may not have a lot of money if you're a home distiller, but you have a lot of passion. And if there's something you want to know about home distilling or a piece of equipment you want, you'll get the money to, to get yeah. it. So that, yeah. whatever that education costs, the consumer will pay for it, yeah. right? Yeah, your so, home distiller definitely does it for the love of it. 100%. Yeah. No other reason, I mean, except to, you know, get drunk, but. But for, right. for the most part, you know, it's it's 100% for the love of it. Because even on a small scale, it's a lot of hard extra work on a man that works 40, 60 hours a week to come home and make his own liquor. So it's definitely for the love of it. Yeah, it is. It, and it's not, you know, if you're if you are a, a legal distiller and you do any any hobby distilling, that's what I'll say, uh, even though shouldn't for obvious reasons, but I'm not going to disparage you for doing it. Uh there's a, if you work at a distillery and then you, you come home and you still do that shit, right? It, it becomes even more fucking hard. Yeah, that <laughs> says a lot. Yeah. It's yeah. just that. Uh, and there, there ain't no amount of it. Like, 
I don't know, like in my head, like my dream setup, if I had any other job other than as a legal distiller, if I was out digging ditches and I was doing this for fun, like in my brain, it's literally like a 15 gallon with a thumper and then a little three gallon Hoga because it's so, so much less work. Right. But even that's yeah. work. That's it, work. It still oh, becomes yeah. work. And, yeah. and even when you mess up, you know, it's still like, damn, I did all that for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's time to start over. But what Absolutely. did I learn? So, but you can rerun it. <laughs> so, um, apple brandy's your uh, what's your favorite thing to run? Uh, I believe you said earlier. So, apple and absinthe, I love. So, apple because of the history and, and the specific style of, of apple brandy to this region. Um, it was what was called an apple mash brandy, which you guys have seen, I'm sure, on the TV show. Um, I did a video for uh, Townsend's at local Locust Grove uh, about historic apple brandy distilling a couple of years ago. It's up on YouTube. Um, but it, it's literally exactly what it sounds like. So the, the process for apple brandy here in Southern Indiana wasn't to press the apples. It was to grind the apples fine and then to cook them in with limestone water where you're actually extracting from the skin and everything, um, which is also an old school European German, German style of thing. So I really like that. I love botanical distillations. Um, I love making absinthe, like real, real absinthe going back, finding the 1800s processes um, the real 1800s processes and breaking them down. And I'll, I will tell you that there's very few people that do it that way because they don't know what to look for. There's a lot of old books that were written about absinthe that do have ingredients lists in them and stuff, and they'll get you about 90% of the way there, but they weren't giving away all their secrets either. Yeah, um, I was talking to Bill Hockett and he said, I need to try what you, you guys made or come up with. Yeah. I can't, Key West. Yeah. Yeah, the, the death in the afternoon, that was uh, – so that's my recipe that Bill distills for uh, Jim down in Key West. There's two two more of those coming. So we did a Verde, and uh, it is a true Belle Epoch-style absinthe uh, all the way – I'll say this. There's – by the time you distill that, there are as many solids in that still as there is liquid. It is – it's an insane amount of botanical. So, uh, for example, you would macerate with – we'll just use – We'll just use three of the main ingredients. So uh, you'd macerate about 250 grams of uh, anise, 250 grams of fennel, and 100 grams of wormwood in one gallon. And that's not counting all the other botanicals, right? So that's almost half the volume of liquid right there. So you, you cook that into the pot? Mm -hmm. while you're, while you're, yep. That's yep. interesting. Yeah, I so, like doing the botanical distillations because they're challenging. There's yep. a lot to them, and you really have to – I mean, if you – even just making a gallon of absinthe is a labor of love. And it takes, it takes more time to make that one gallon of absinthe and more effort than it does to make 50 gallons of sugar shine. Cause you got to weigh everything out. You got to grind it all up. You got to do your macerations. You got to make sure your flavor profile is right. Uh, you'll spend a lot of time. Just, I, I'll tell you, like when I first started making real absinthe like that, so we made absinthe of copper and Kings too, but it was more like an Ozu, which is a lot simpler. I fucked up five or six absent distillations. That shit's expensive, right? Uh, it was real expensive. And they, like, there was literally a guy that I called and I very rarely call somebody and ask them because I'd like to pride myself on, you know, being self-taught. Now I listen to everybody. I like to learn from people, but I had one guy and I've got a piece of paper and I won't say his name cause he's a real secretive dude. Um, but he was out in the West and he's, he's been, uh, He's been to France and made absinthe. He's been to the Swiss Alps and made absinthe. And the thing that I was missing out on was the coloration step and trying to figure out you can get the color, but getting the flavor right with the coloration step uh, compared to these old vintage absinths that I had to sample through. And so I have this piece of paper that has, it says his name and it says the Rosetta Stone. Right. Oh. 
because he was the only person that could tell me what I was fucking up. And I could have sat there and tried to work my way through that and work my way through it. And I never, ever, ever would have figured it out if it wasn't for this guy telling me. And what it was simple. It was me way overthinking things. Um, That's the beauty it, of not of a master distiller. Yeah, yeah. You know, but you those, know, you, yeah. Go ahead, ahead. Sorry, John. Oh no, I was gonna say you never are. You know, you're always learning something. Doesn't matter who you are. Absolutely. Yeah. If I, I, and that's why I don't use the title master distiller. I call myself alchemist and people probably think that that's ego driven. It's not. So here's the deal. If you're going to use some kind of marketing term and you're going to be pretentious, be completely fucking pretentious. Right. <laughs> so if I ever, if I ever switch jobs to another distillery, I've done decided I'm going to get rid of alchemist. And I'm going to go with maestro just to be a fucking dick. <laughs> so. Uh, but yeah, those, those botanical distillations are, those are the ones I like because you, you really have to focus on those flavors. And sometimes it's stuff that you don't like, right? It's, yeah. it's flavors that you don't like. You're not used to like, I initially, I hated the flavor of anise, what people associate with black licorice. And it took me a long time to understand and appreciate that uh, to the extent that, you know, now I can very easily, you know, see the difference between the actual flavor of black licorice and the flavor of anise. Uh, but it's a subtlety and it's a subtlety that we don't, a lot of regions in the United States don't have that culturally. Yeah. Uh, so it takes a little while to sort of retrain your brain to get to that point. And then I even like scaling those recipes up because they, they don't scale the same way a whiskey mash does, right? A whiskey mash, you do a, you do it on a 10 gallon still and you scale it up to a, a hundred gallon still, it usually tastes pretty well the same mm -hmm. with botanicals. It's not like that. Cause you might have, um, you take something like grains of paradise or, or, uh, or cayenne, some of these really small things that are very intensely flavored and you might be at, you know, 0.05 grams per gallon, um, on a little one gallon run. And if you try to scale that up to a hundred gallon run, it'll blow your fucking head off. Right. It, it won't even be close. You have to cut it back to half of what it was a lot of times to get it close. That's interesting. So I tried the first absinthe I've ever had. Yeah. Uh, was it last week or the week before? I can't remember. Yes, all voices. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't know what to gauge it by. Never had yeah. it before, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh I black licorice, I mean, you know, yeah. that's what I thought. I mean yep. but it it was decent liquor. Yeah. You know, I, I Yeah. He he did he did a he did a good job for the first for his first go at absinthe for sure. Um what I'd tell you is if you ever see it, and it, it may be hard to get in Ohio, uh, you can order them online sometimes, though, too. Uh, there's a line. Actually, you probably know who I'm talking about here. So he was on he was on Moonshiners, and we've had him on the show. He's on Master Distiller on Mina's episode, the Absinthe episode, Ted Bro. So uh, Ted does this line of what's called uh, jade liqueurs, and they're, they're all absinths that are made at the uh, Combier Distillery in uh, France, and they're all based on Victorian-era absinthe recipes um and every one of them is fucking amazing i mean they're they're just like if you if you ever had vintage samples of the originals and you put them next to what ted is doing they're pretty much dead on uh but the, the there's one that i absolutely love it's uh it's called edward is what it's called and if you can ever find that it's expensive it's it's about anywhere i've seen anywhere between 80 and 120 dollars a bottle um but it's fucking phenomenal see i'm not <clears throat> I'm not one of the people that really like to go out and buy a whole bunch of shit. Right. Um, as for, well, I mean, you know, as far as bourbons and stuff, I don't like wood generally. Um, right. And I'd almost rather drink my own stuff instead of go out and pay, you know. Yep. Yep. But I mean, it's, 
But that's the beauty, yeah. you know. If you have friends that make this, man, I always like to get something that my friend makes. Right. And we'll see if uh, maybe I can get you some samples. Of that I'll see what I can't find and see if I can't get you some stuff sent out. Because uh, well, if something happens and you come across a bottle, let me know what I ate because I'd like to try it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I haven't bought a bottle of whiskey in a uh, well. I take it back. I bought a bottle of Evan Williams bottled and bond a few weeks ago because I was so tired of drinking my own shit. <laughs> I was like, I just got need something different. And I don't want to spend much money on it. You know, that's one of those, uh, one of those lower price bourbons. It's, it's pretty damn good for what it is, but I oh end up God. with so many samples from the show. Right. I just, I, I have to, I have to give shit away because it ends up being so much stuff here all the time. And it's like, every time we go somewhere, she, the woman's always like, you always come back with so much whiskey. It doesn't matter where we go, like to, you know, some kind of event or yeah. festival or something, because everyone's like, here, try this, try that, try that, here, take this. Right. Just take a jar with you. Yeah, before you know it, you're coming back with two, two and a half gallons of liquor. Right. <laughs> like when we was in New Stratsville and people are coming, Judd showed up and Noble Tucky, and yeah. like, here, I got it. Here's a jar of this and a jar of that, and this jar is from this person, and yep. here's a jar for you that I made, and so and so, you're like, you leave home and you're like, man, my cooler's a lot heavier than when I left. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's one of those things I like about being in the industry. I'm in, a, I'm, in, I'm in that weird position where being a home distiller and then being on, quote, unquote, the wrong side of the river, right? Like, all my other friends that aren't uh, moonshiners or home distillers, they all collect whiskey, and they do drink it too, right? And, and I'm the only dude that doesn't have a collection because I'm like, listen, I either fucking drink it or I give it away. <laughs> There's not a yeah. bottle in this house that is part of a collection. It does not exist. It's not a thing here. I only I have one, one jar, two jars. I take that back. I have a jar from the mash that I made with Mike Stallings at Moonshiner's Ball because he took that, he took that stuff home and distilled it, and I'll keep that forever. I, I take a drink yeah. out of it every once in a while, and I have that shitty Carlos Rossi fucking wine brandy sulfated <laughs> bullshit. From then I have uh, I have a little Ball. collection, a little collection of samples of faulty stuff, right? And Christy Atkinson brings me shit all the time. Like, tell me what's wrong with this, and she'll give me a sample of it, and. uh so I have a few of those things, but I keep that I keep that one jar from Moonshiner's Ball just to mess with people because you can open that thing in my kitchen and somebody be standing oh, on the shit. front porch <laughs> and smell that bullshit. That was the very first run of liquor I ever made was was uh, Carlos Rossi, right? Right. And it was not good. Had there been <laughs> some more copper in that still, we probably could have knocked that sulfate down a little bit, yeah. but. That stuff is rough, buddy. It, it, and I'm I'm super sensitive to uh, to acetaldehyde as well as sulfates. Both, um, like even with acetaldehyde, if Kim if Kim uses fingernail polish remover, I can't be in the house. I can't yeah, really? I can't deal with it. Yeah, it it, it immediately triggers a headache, um, almost like ocular migraine sort of thing. Interesting. So, which is also funny because I chain smoke, as you guys can see. So you wouldn't think it would fuck with me, but it does. Yeah. <clears throat> So, out of everything that you make, what's your favorite thing to drink that you make? Oh man! Um, so I do love the apple brandy, although so certain things are obviously a little closer to my heart than other things are. So, like I have I have a hard time drinking the apple brandy because I'll I'll just sit and analyze it all night, and I'll be like, "Well, you fuck that up, <laughs> right?" Um, the same thing with Lee Sinclair. So, Lee Sinclair is our four grain. Uh, it's corn, oats, wheat, and caramel malt. Um, and that was really the first mash bill I came up with. So I told you guys earlier that my, you know, my dad and grandpa said, don't blow your ass in the backyard, bring us something worth drinking. 
So I knew that oats were a grain. I didn't know there's any history to them in whiskey distilling. There's a huge history of oats uh, in both Indiana and Kentucky and then going yeah. back into Ireland and Scotland. So that's where that recipe came from. I can't sit down and drink it and enjoy it because I'm constantly analyzing it. I really like, uh, we came out with a weeded, uh, weeded bourbon, which is William Dalton, uh, which is 70 corn, 20 wheat, 10% caramel malt. And it's, it's basically a mirror of um, all those weeded bourbons that you see on the market. So Happy has a very similar recipe, Old Fitzgerald, Larceny, et cetera. They basically use almost that exact same recipe. That's the one, I, if I'm going to sit down and drink uh, and not think about it, that's the one that I'll go to because it's, it's not my unique recipe right and i know i know what the other ones taste like versus mine where we use a different type of malt and do double pot still versus low rectification columns still so i feel good about it right because i feel like i did something that's in a slightly different direction than what comes out of kentucky but it's still familiar enough that i don't have to think about it too awful hard okay oh yeah so what so do you guys use any sugar at your distillery no, so I, I put that – honestly, guys, I put that distillery in, like, the worst possible fucking position when I started there because I was such a purist about everything. But put it like, on the map. Yeah, I was like, uh, we ain't doing no fucking liqueurs. There's no cordials. There's no fucking moonshine coming out of here. Like, not that there's anything wrong with that, right? No. Yep. And if I ever go anywhere else, I'll probably do the exact opposite because I like to compete with myself. But I literally put them on, like, the worst possible, like, starting Damn. position – on the field because we didn't do any of the easy shit. Like even the vodka, you know, most people buy in GNS. We didn't buy in GNS. We, we literally made vodka from fucking scratch on that little 350 gallon with the two columns and three, that 350 gallon, like a normal whiskey runs like six hours, right? With running those two columns and the speed that you had to run at, like every single run was legitimately 17 hours, right? For about 50, 60 gallons of, 192 proof vodka that's crazy um and luckily you know they i won't say that the family appreciated it uh at the time but they let me get away with it and um it it somehow it worked we were able to play enough into the market that and play off of that sort of purest attitude and we were already doing tons of social media stuff before covid ever hit so like there was no you saw all these other big guys, they had to switch gears, right? They went from being on the road to, oh, shit, we don't know how to do any of this, you know, video stuff or anything. And we were already hitting on all the cylinders there. So COVID actually helped us. I mean, it. Yeah. we were already in place to make that happen. So, And that's what's awesome, too, man, because COVID was a big deal. And mm-hmm. then it was either you, you're going under or you're going to exceed. Go I mean, figure it out, yeah. Yeah. And we you know. we we just got lucky with that because what happened was right before COVID hit, we started selling single barrels. Right. Um, and we had just hit like, we had some success with a two year old bourbon. Also, we don't use any small barrels. I should mention that too. It's all 53 gallon and larger. So it's literally, again, it's the hardest possible route to business. That you could go with a distillery. So we had just started selling single barrels. We were coming up on bottled and bond. We had just started releasing some bottled and bond stuff. Um, and I was on the road quite a bit doing sales and I, fucking hate doing that stuff i would much rather be at the distillery you know nothing nothing wrong with 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 doing that and you got to do it to some extent um but listen i don't need to be best friends with everybody i don't need people to pretend to be best friends with me either right like i, I wake up and shit in a pot of clean drinking water like everybody else does so <laughs> don't kiss my ass just because i make liquor right um 
so there was a little part of me, I wasn't happy about COVID, I'll say that, but there was a little part of me that was real fucking happy that I didn't have to get in a car and fucking go anywhere anymore, right? And I could just do it from the bedroom. That's funny. So when COVID was a big deal, man, that was when uh, I spent a lot of time figuring things out. Yep. Because, uh, you know, the baby was about to be born. I wound up being off work. And uh, it just worked out great. Yeah. It worked out great. Yeah, well, the stuff you're making is is, is cool, man. I, I the the infuser thing, the jar infuser. Yeah, that was cool. So I was I was listening to uh, uh was it uh, Moonshine Shua the other day, and he mentioned like 1920 prohibition infuser, and like oh, yeah. I never I hadn't seen one. I saw the thing that you posted, and I'm like, what the fuck is what is what is this <laughs> fucking thing, right? And then I'm, I'm messaging him like, can you tell me what you're talking about? Because he didn't, you know, don't show it on on yep. the video or anything. And I was like, that's fucking brilliant. And it's it, and it's it's a small little thing right but it's fucking it's a great idea it's a it's a great idea just like you know rick doing the tennessee thumpers and yeah. all that stuff um, you know, um big easy here he he makes a lot of peach brandy and uh last one he made he it used used it what like three times or some shit i, I infused twice with it i made a twice. little one for my little copper pot out of a sight glass and some fittings and and um i infused twice through the run and man that Adding it throughout your run definitely changed the end flavor product. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those little, you know, some people think of them as gadgets or they think of them as gimmicks or whatever. Listen, if it, if it makes good liquor, that's all that matters. And it, you know, it, it's another tool in the toolbox and that's why I get excited about the home distilling stuff. And I'll tell you what I was really excited about for this whole Russia, Ukraine shit went down. Uh, you guys familiar with the uh, Dr. Gratis? Have you ever heard of them? Okay, so Dr. Gratis is this Russian moonshine still company. And um, it started by a guy named Andre. He's uh, he's in his early 20s, and he's fucking brilliant. His dad was a home distiller. They lived in New Zealand for a little while. His dad went back to Russia, and he bought some equipment, but he wasn't happy with any of it. It was like, fuck, our friends own a machine shop. Let's just start making equipment. Now, what I learned was, so here in the U.S., we have about, at rough estimate last time I checked, it's estimated there's about 250,000 home distillers in the United States, right? That's crazy, man. Yes. Here's what's more crazy. In Russia, it's close to 2 million home distillers. And so there are 20 or so moonshine really? still companies in Russia. Yeah, because it's so it's actually legal in Russia to distill at home. It has been since like 2006, 2007 because the economy is not great. You live out in fucking Siberia. You know, so, none of the companies are shipping anything out there, right? So do they um, sell it, I wonder, the home distiller over there? I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do, more than likely. I'll tell you this. There's a there's a whole – I don't know if you could find it now with all this shit going on, but Andre turned me on to this. There's a whole section of YouTube that's kind of hidden that's mm -hmm. basically like Russian YouTube, right? And it's just page after page after page after page of these Russian home distillers and the crazy fucking equipment they've got. So like Dr. Gratis, some of the stuff that Andre was doing, so he'd have like a – 10 gallon stainless steel boiler right uh but then like if you wanted to expand it to 17 gallons you'd have a false a false boiler so it's just the wall and it clamps onto the top right now you've got a 17 gallon still right he had uh a still that had both liquid and vapor management for reflux on it to run it two different ways i also had a gin basket on it he had found a way to turn a pot using the condenser into a continuous column system um mm -hmm. You guys know what a, a Soxlet extractor is? I wish I had it up here. I'd show it to you. A what? A Soxlet extractor. So th th these things are fucking cool, and I wish there were more sources for them. So a Soxlet is basically you run it on top of a pot, 
and it looks like a gin basket. You fill it up with your botanicals. Then you put a shell and tube condenser on top of it, but you leave it open to the atmosphere because it works off the atmosphere. You start to boil your liquid in the pot. It comes up. It comes through the, the basically like the gin basket. It picks up those botanicals. It comes up and it hits that full 100% reflux. Nothing ever passes over. It drops back down and it fills the sight glass up on that gin basket. Now you've got hot liquor sitting on top of those botanicals. You've extracted it twice. You have a little vapor or a little atmospheric release on the side. You hit, everything drops out of suspension in the column back into the pot. You'll run it two or three times like that and keep reinfusing. You can do this with wood or botanicals or whatever you want to do. Fucking uh, genius, man. Take, for example, something like limoncello where it might be a normal, yeah. you know, three-month process to macerate that. 20 minutes, you're fucking done. It's it's there. It's finished. It's infused. It's ready to go. Shit like yeah. that's cool. Wow. So it's so a, still, still more stuff to do. There's so much shit that you that anybody can learn out there, man. That's the beauty of this shit, you know. Yep. Well, you know, you can do what they say, man. When when you're done learning, then you're done. Done. So, yeah. Yep. Either you're done make you're done fucking with it, or you're dead. That's yeah. You, you're just done, you know. Like if. And especially if you think you've learned it all, then you definitely you, you need a little ego check. You got a ways to go. Yeah, so. that's I, I kind of wish it would change the name of the Master Distiller Show because of that. You know, um, me and you, well, actually both of us, we all have talked about this. You know, there, it's a it, that's just a name that's thrown around way too lightly. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's no there's no um. There's no real historical precedent for it either. That's a fairly recent term. I mean, before prohibition, it was it was yeast maker and distiller. That's their, literally their primary job was to keep the yeast strain going, and then also, yeah, you're a distiller. You know, and it, it's just like any other trade. There should be some amount of apprenticeship going. You know, distilling at home or distilling for another company and going on a show and winning that show, no matter how good you are, doesn't make you the, a master, right? Yeah, you you, you could be running the still for four months, go on there, win the show, and they call you master distiller. Right. That or pisses me off because I've spent a lot of time fucking shit. I've spent longer than four months fucking shit up. Right. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, that's that's how I'm. I'm always trying to learn stuff. That's why I started fucking around with trying to build stills, and I fucked up a lot of copper. A <laughs> lot of copper. Wasted right? a lot of money, man. That's how I am. You know, I've, yeah. I've got a 14 by 10 sheet out here 14 inch by 10 foot long sheet uh, i'm not fucked with it yet you know because me and me and easy here we're gonna start fucking with it you know just yep. trying different shit you know I, but man i just it it took me four sheets of copper Big <laughs> and buying a, buying a yeah buying a bunch of tools before i kind of figured out what i was actually doing to some degree because i don't have anybody teach me that stuff and i didn't really need to do it but yep. i wanted to learn how to do it i'm not going to get into selling stills and all that stuff i just wanted to learn how to do it i thought it'd be cool and i got told my wife the other day i was like well cool i learned how to do this at least in some practical way i may not be the best at it in the world but i know how to do it the unfortunate thing is now i no longer have money to buy fucking copper now that i know what i'm doing <laughs> spend all the money trying to figure it out now that you figured it out you ain't got the money to do right it. so when i finally <laughs> get to buy a new sheet of copper i'm gonna have to learn it all again you know oh yeah so you know, but I, I i had this big list like i looked up i bought books on copper building and all that stuff i had this list of tools right i bought all this fucking stuff and i bet there's five tools five i use out of everything i have that's <laughs> The only, the only, the only high price toy that I had for the copper work that was worthwhile was I finally I bought a steak anvil because it makes 
makes working copper so much easier if you're going to do it by hand. So, oh yeah, good shit. You know, uh, one of the reasons why I agreed to do this podcast with Sean was to have guests on and just sit here and learn. Like, <laughs> compared to all our other episodes, I'm just sitting here being quiet and drinking and, and just <laughs> listening, and, and I enjoy that more than anything. A lot more hearing myself talk, that's for sure. Right. And so, you know, that's. This is awesome for me just to sit here and listen, and, and I'm sure everybody sees me looking down at my phone. Just, I'm taking fucking notes. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Like, I talk a lot, so that, that's that's fair. So, I, I, I ramble. And so. I, I'm cool with that. Keep rambling, man, because it's all great yeah. information for me. Like so, this is this is definitely the longest podcast we've done so far, and, right? And I, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Um, yeah, I am I'm, curious. I'm half lit, and you know, I got. I got notes. Hopefully I can decipher them tomorrow and this right. is a good time. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, feel free to reach out anytime, any, anytime you guys or anybody listening to the show, you guys have questions. That's, that's why I started doing that one piece of time distilling institute thing. Cause I get questions from people a lot and I don't yeah. always have time to like respond to them with an email or on Facebook. And sometimes you know how it is. Even if you love this stuff, like you get home, you read a message like, Oh, I don't not tonight. I'll reply to this tomorrow. And then you yeah, fucking yeah. forget about it. Right. So, that's why I'm doing those things is, is, and not that I'm right about all this stuff. Cause certainly there are people that make better liquor than I do, uh, in my opinion. Um, and they, <laughs> some of them, excuse me, some of them can do it in, uh, in ways that I think sound fucking asinine. Right. So I'm not always right about everything. And if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll tell people that I'm wrong. Absolutely. You know, um, that's, that goes to one of the things where, you know, when people ask questions, I don't like to give them answers if I'm not, if I've not experienced it before. Yep. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Or if I'm like, well, I don't know, but, but I know, say, you know, you have, I'm like, well, I haven't, you know, experienced that, but I know Alan Bishop has, right. And this is what he did or, you know, whatever. And they're like, okay, you know, yep. I feel completely comfortable with that because you're more knowledgeable and more experienced in my opinion than I am. Yeah. Like I said, I try to, I try to help everybody out with that stuff. If I can, my, the only, the only time I ever get aggravated about stuff is, uh, if somebody asks asks me a question and I give them an answer and like and they don't even use it, they either don't use it or the other one that they'll do is like, well, what you said doesn't make sense. Like, uh, well, listen, uh, try it and then fucking get back to me, right? Or piecing together a Rick Gibson still. <laughs> yes, yes. Or in the uh, in uh, uh, this will get this will get old Ricky good. Or uh, being friends with a, a a gentleman out in California, Chris Koning. Uh, who's still waiting on a piece of equipment from fucking Rick Gibson. You better get yeah, it in the box yeah. and get it out there, Ricky. You know what's funny is I was talking to, to Chris on the phone the other day, and I said, man, I'll tell you what, I just sold a fucking 100-gallon still to do the load over in uh, West Virginia. Right. I said right. I should have just sent it a little, you know, a little bit the other way. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> <to> you. <laughs> Chris, Chris was responsible for two of those late nights. I had this last week because he was in Louisville. And uh, on Wednesday, we actually we called Rick Gibson. Uh, to try to fuck with him a little bit when we were at a bar. Yeah, and he was still the night after, the day after. He was telling yeah. me about that. Yeah, he goes, he, uh, he answered, and I, I turned my phone. I called him from my phone. I turned my phone to Chris. So whenever he answered, he saw Chris's fucking face. And I see Rick, and I'm looking at the phone, and he's, he goes, what, yeah. fuckers? He goes, I'm in Home Depot getting stuff right now. <laughs> Man, so. and, and that's what I was talking. I can't remember who the fuck I was talking to about Rick, you know. Compared to, like, you know, even some of the shit that I do. Like, Rick's shit is – bigger you know as a whole so it it does take him a little longer to get shit done you know mine right. i can turn two or three over a night if i have to absolutely absolutely you know, but, but man you know rick 
You know, he yep. makes beautiful shit. He does. Or, he does a great job. And the other thing about Rick is that you know, just like how it started off with he and I having that conversation about a small, you know, small little Tennessee thumper, and then it turned into a bigger one, then a bigger one, and all right, now you got me fucking interested. And I'll give him my ideas. <laughs> And then you wait for him to get back to you and be like, yeah, I changed this fucking thing or I changed that fucking thing. Right. And it's all stuff that makes sense It all. And you just got to yeah. let Rick do what Rick does. And uh, he's going to, he'll, he'll deliver on it, you know? Yeah. So yep. I remember Sometimes you got to yeah. let an artist work. You got to let an artist work. You just got to be like, look, man, this is what yeah. I want. You uh, do your thing yep. and give me a beautiful piece of art. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I, I'm curious, uh, uh, Sean, I've had some of your stuff in the past. I don't know if you're – you may not even want to get into this on camera. I don't know. But you, are you still you still doing any distilling or uh, – Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, and uh, Big, I'm, what, what, kind of, what kind of stuff do you do? What's your, what's your forte? Where are you at? What do you like? I prefer to make brandy. I like to make brandy. I like to make what I like to drink. Right. And, uh, yeah, I like buddy. To, I like to drink some brandies. <laughs> and um, Sean seems to enjoy my brandy, so whenever I make a, a batch, I always – Send a jar his way. Yeah, yeah. So what? I'm, what? Uh, and now I'm asking you guys questions because I'm, I'm curious to get out because I like it. Uh, so when you guys are distilling at home, let's say whatever you're distilling, uh, what, what's your what's your preferred methodology? What do you use? Are you using a still with a thumper? Are you using you know just if it's let's say it's not a special project. It's just I'm making some liquor for myself or my friends. Uh, what what are you making and what are you using to make it? Uh if I'm making it for me and my friends, it's probably going to be banana brandy. Mm -hmm. um, just simple yep. copper pot, copper thumper, um, copper, copper worm. Um, yeah. I, I like to use uh, bread yeast on my bananas. Um, yep. I think it gives it a little bit of nutty flavor. Mm -hmm. um, and and then, you know, my infusion, um, either 99 bananas or, or some type of uh, real high potent banana alcohol. Yeah. Um, just to really pump that flavor in it. And I'll usually, when I do make my bananas, I'll take and make a stripping run, and I'll just use that stripping run for my thump cake primer when I do run bananas throughout the year. Because I'm only doing, like, you know, small batches, like 20 gallons. and Yeah. I'm not doing anything real big, so. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say this for <clears throat> for home distillers, too. I, like I told you guys, uh, you know, when I, I when I was in my 20s, I had that 150-gallon pot, and uh, – you have to make some money off of that for sure, right? There's some, there's some, there's some, uh, there's some levity to, to something that size. But the truth of the matter is, uh, the most fun I ever have distilling and the best product I have is off of small pots. And uh, there's just, again, you know, 17 gallon with a thumper. Um, I like to have all the toys to play with. I've got plates and deflamators yeah. and, you know, all that kind of shit. But a 17 gallon with a thumper that I can, I can bypass with a worm. Um, and then, you know, a little two or three gallon for a doubling still on something like that with a gin basket and a deflamator. I like I, that's that's really what I like. And the other thing I got into recently was um, uh, running high line distillation. So holding proof at like 170. I don't like to go to 180 or 190, but like 170 for base alcohols and stuff like that. And using uh, shell and tube condensers. Um, shell and tube? Yeah. Or just a, a shotgun? shotgun. Yeah. Okay. The bag, cold finger, whatever you want to call it. Uh it's a long, it's a long distillation and it's a drip distillation, but I, ha I have a lot of fun doing it and it makes me feel, I guess it makes me feel a little bit like a mad scientist when I'm doing that. Yeah, right? you, were, so. you were telling me a while back that you, when you run higher proof, you like to run through a bag or uh, I do. something like that. I do. I yeah. like to slow it down and, and really focus on what I'm after. Cause so here's one of the, the, the mistakes I think a lot of home distillers make is they think, they think high proof, they think 
no flavor or less flavor. Right. And they're right to a certain degree, right? But we talked positive and negative flavor earlier. You know, sometimes with certain distillations and certain products, especially for white alcohol, some of those flavors you don't want in there. You want to actually drop them out of suspension and focus on certain other flavors that are less volatile, right? And so you're you, while you're losing flavor, it's somewhat negative flavor, and now you've focused on a flavor that you actually want. And so those are fun distillations. Since, since you brought that to fortation, I guess, what do you think about running a four-plate still and adding jars after the plates to infuse it back in? I think that's brilliant because that's exactly what you want to do with, with say, uh, a botanical spirit or a flavored spirit. What the hell is going on? Your dog over there, like, humping you or something? No, it's not here. It's over at his house, man. That, oh. one, that one's over him. My, my, my old man just walked up over here. Yeah. Gotcha. He's gotcha. all great day, and he'll be 12 in October. Oh, nice. Yeah. So just- uh, yeah, that's that's exactly what you want to do. I mean, you want to you want to have that base alcohol at, you know, a fairly high, somewhat neutral. Maybe you want to hold on to some of that base alcohol proof, right? So 170 or so is, is good. Uh, and then reinfuse it. I mean, there's no – I don't see a difference between that and running uh, grain neutral and then doing a gin, you know, using gin basket and maturation. I think that's a great idea. Well, see what we – you know, so before the show, I never reran anything unless I fucked it up, and that's kind of the that was my thoughts on that. You know, so on the show we we just fucked up rerunning it. I'm like, this is just fucking weird to me. You know, I've right. always used thumpers, so I you know I've just never though the first time I ever heard about rerunning anything was down in Kentucky. You know, these yep. guys I I know I kind of I don't say learned from them, but yeah, they were my first introduction to it. And that's what they do for a living. And it's not on your side of things, but they rerun everything they do. Yep. yep. And uh, they make very, very good liquor. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I'm like, man, this is just weird. We were in. I, I was, I remember the third run. I, I dumped like three or four quarts back in this fucking pot, man. I'm like, <laughs> yep. I just took a fucking gallon and dump, you know. Yeah, fucking water I could back be in. drinking this. I could be drinking this. Why am I dumping it back in? I no, so, so, do you feel like you lose liquor by rerunning it? Yeah, that's no. a, that's a good question. I always wonder when you when you strip and you rerun, and after you proof down in the end, do you feel like that you have less yield, or is it a little less but it's better, or is it like a higher higher proof for the second run, so it kind of equals out? At the end, it, it equals out um, because it is the higher proof uh, and, the, and you are able to add that water back into it. And so if I like, for example, if I um, if I look at my distillations at work with whiskey, like and I, I put it in the system that I have and everything and track it, you, you can figure out and there's a formula for figuring out um, how many proof gallons you should get from a fermentation. Right. So if I go through and I put everything in the system and I look at my averages. Excuse me, guys. Um, I'll be pulling eighty nine percent of what we put in there off of it, um, and the only reason there's any loss is because of the only reason there's any loss whatsoever. My dog's attacking now. <laughs> it's because of not rerunning heads and stopping at twenty proof, or if like you know, if if we're at the end of the season on a product, <laughs> we're at the end of the season on a product. We don't save the tails on that last run. Um, give me just a second, guys. <laughs> this is why it's live and unedited, so I can die. <laughs> That's right. I got, I got the hiccups over here while you're over there fucking golfing. 
right? This, um, this is just so we know that the wife didn't off you. This is her proof. I've drank when they come in because they always bottle. blame the spouse. They always blame the spouse. Absolutely. So I got to work in the morning. Shut Sean's going to need a new bottle of apple brandy. Absolutely. <laughs> Mine's a, my wife's sneaky. She wouldn't do it that way. It would be, uh, it would definitely be like uh, arsenic very slowly over time. Uh, <laughs> or it would be like death by a thousand paper cuts. It seemed like an accident somehow. Sometimes uh, the paper cuts are worse. To, to add, add one more thing to your question there. So let's say, for example, with base alcohol, like you're going to make a 170 base. Okay. Um, and you're going to use that to rerun for a gin or an aqua beat or an absinthe, whatever you're going to rerun. Um, thank you. You are, you're basically going to get out. You should get out within 90% of what you initially put into that still. So if you put a half gallon in there and then you proof it down in the still before you run it, cause you shouldn't be going into the still with anything already proof anyways, you should be pulling at least 80% to 90% of that volume back okay. off the still the next time that you run. So there's a little waste, but it's not, yep. it's not enough to really matter. Um, well, you know, the reason why we were kind of talking about that. So, like I said, my, the people in Kentucky, I know, they rerun everything. And that's what they do for, I mean, I don't say who, but that's right. know, what they do for a living to this day. And it's it just blows my mind. You know, I'm like, man, so you guys rerun everything? Yep. And it's, no it's time consuming. It's time consuming for sure. Well, and I've, I've been like, man, what if I bring you, you know, uh, 15 gallon keg and then a five gallon keg and then a worm and we run your mash and see how you like it. Yeah. You know, if that's what you do for a living, mm -hmm. maybe you could, you, you, you know, would sacrifice just a little bit of flavor for right. double the month. I mean, I, you know, right. Right. And for time. me, it, it, it's that toolbox conversation still too, right? It depends on what you're running, what you want out of it, what the, what your practicality is yep. from it, what the, what the theoretical idea behind the whole thing is. Uh, will very much so depend on on what I'm going to run and how I'm going to run it. Um, but, you know, there, I will say this for double pot still distillation, especially for grain and brandy. Um, double pot still distillation is, is the oldest form of distilling for potable alcohol other than running an aqua tar. Um, and there's there's a reason in my mind why to be classified as single malt in Scotland, it has to be double pot distilled. Why to be classified as cognac in France, it has to be double pot distilled. And even with bourbon, the thing in the bourbon industry, people don't realize, you know, when I was when I started doing, you know, bourbon on a pot still, and there were a few guys doing it. There's not a there's still not a ton of them. A lot of people go to low rec columns, which don't work the same way. There's a little like pushback on that from traditional bourbon drinkers because they don't really understand the history of it. What I tell them all the time is, listen, it might be more common nowadays to, to run a bourbon on a low rec column still. But whether or not you realize it and whether or not you like it, bourbon was born on a pot still because that low rec column didn't come in until 1870. And mm -hmm. bourbon as a category has existed since the 1820s. And, and prior to that, it was basically bourbon. Uh, it just wasn't called that. Uh, you know, yeah. so the, the pot still, the double pot still method was where bourbon was born at. Now, the other cool thing that people don't realize is a lot of people think that thumpers are a, a, a real close to prohibition sort of thing. Uh, and they're, they're not. Uh, and even, even I've talked to Rick about this before. So, the Tennessee Thumper, the multiple jars. You can go back and read. Um, yeah, you can go back into. Uh, there's a, a book that was written by an alchemist named John French in the 1400s. And uh, he talks about, they don't call them thumpers, they call them retorts. And that's still what they call them in the Caribbean for rum production, too. Uh, but you'll find uh, illustrations of basically an alambic, a pot still with eight or nine retorts on it in a row, just really? like the jars are being used now. Right. So yeah. none of that. Yeah, none of that stuff is new stuff. It's 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 always existed. We just rediscover it. And I tell people that about even 
you know, the bourbons we make are off kilter from what's commercially available for the most part. And everybody's like, well, how'd you come up with that idea? And I tell them like, listen, none of this stuff is new. Like if you were to go back to 1850 before that low rec column came in and everybody switched from using some of these odd grains that were sticky because they sucked to run through a column still, uh, everything that I'm doing existed amongst farm distillers. You know, I'm not the first person that was using any of these grains. This is all stuff that's existed in the past. It just comes back around. And, and maybe, you, maybe you know that history and maybe you don't know that history, but it, it's out there if you look hard enough. Well, and, and, and that's the thing. Again, you know, um, you, even if you do know it, you can still use whatever you want out of that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's, yeah that's, that's, where, that's where I learn more than I'd learn anything else. Legitimately, guys. I say that to any home distiller out there. So, you know, I always tell people, everybody always says that. Read, 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 read. And I'll be more specific. Don't jump on distilling forums unless they're Facebook and you can trust them and you can trust the people on there. But like some of the forums that are just on the Internet, fuck yeah. those guys. A lot of them are assholes. Um, <laughs> go back uh, and find the literature that was written in the 1800s uh yeah. there's there's a book called the practical distiller there's another book called the distiller uh there's the distiller. a book yeah that was the first one i believe i yep. ever read there was yeah. uh there was a book that was written in the 1880s that was uh what the hell is it called uh, it'll come to me in a minute the complete not the complete distiller maybe it was it's a big thick book um i learned more from that old literature than I do from anything else. And, and here's yeah. the other side of it being on the commercial side of things too. If you mention that, if you go to say Moonshine University and you say, yeah, these books, right? This is where I got a lot of energy. First thing you're going to get out of these people to teach those classes is, well, those are, those are out of date. You know, that stuff yeah. uh, doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Uh, listen, I've made the entire career off making that stuff make sense. It still works and it's still some of the best information out there. The, the shit back then worked then and I don't see why it won't work now. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's uh, just doing it in a different way or mm -hmm. using it with a different still. Yeah. Well, that, that third book that I mentioned, I'll have to, I'll have to find, I'll have to look through my library and find it and send you guys a picture of it. It was written at a time when uh, France was allowing distilleries to open up in like restaurants and, and uh, bistros and places like that. Little bitty pot stills. Right. Um, well, these, a lot of these guys were untrained distillers. And this book was written literally as basically a primer on every type of distillation you can imagine for a product that somebody might want in France at that time, uh, including things that weren't, you know, local to the region. And so it's, it's a great outline on all kinds of liqueurs and liquors and, and whiskeys and brandies. Uh, and it's, it's what they would have considered basic information back then. But to us nowadays, because we're, we're so dumbed down by, You've seen the guys say, "Don't bring science into it" and all that shit. Listen, you're, you're, you're. At some point in your family, somebody knew the science, or you wouldn't yeah. be fucking doing what you're doing. That book has so much information for being basic at that time. It's absolutely insane. Um, and there's some, there's some great. For example, there's three or four absinthe recipes in there. They won't get you all the way there. They'll get you right. about ninety percent of the way there, and the rest of it's on you to figure out from there with your intuition. So, so there's one thing that I did want to uh, ask about was uh something i've never really um had the experience with or anything but propagation of your own of the yeast yeah yeah Absolutely. you know that's something i've never uh messed with Didn't, i'm just ignorant you know um I, if it's grain you know i'll tell you just as well as you know big easy knows i use bread yeast yep. up to like nine ten percent works yep. all right for me um 
but how does that work? I mean, you know, to... yeah. Well, what I'll what I'll say first is uh, there ain't nothing wrong with red yeast. Uh, the house yeast that we currently propagate at the distillery, because yep. uh, we use two different yeast strains for each batch. We basically divide our our fermentation into two six hundred gallon batches, split by twenty four hours. Uh, that house yeast that we propagate ourselves that started off as Fleischmann's red yeast because it retains that grain flavor. So I, oh, I love Fleischmann's, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but so propagating your own yeast is, is, a, is a super simple. That you can make it as complicated as you want to, but I, I tend to stick to a lot of the old practical distilling things. And that was that was something that every old distiller did. Uh, distiller had a, what was called a donut jug that carried with them to and from work every day, and it's a copper jug with a stopper on it. Uh, that you propagate your yeast in. You carry it home with you every day when you went home. You brought it back in with you the next day to pitch yeast out of, to get it back up and going again. Filled it, took it home, took care of it. And then you'd have a secondary one that was a backup one. And what you do is you get the yeast up and going for about 24 hours. You close the drain cock off. You throw a chain on the handle, drop it down in a well or a lake somewhere where it's going to be cold and no oxygen gets to it. And if your distillery burns down or whatever happens, you still got that yeast strain on hand. Um, it's not hard to do. And instead of going through all of the process for, let's say, uh, a liquid yeast. I'll give you guys the simplest possible way to do this. And people think it's crazy when they hear it. Uh, there's still a lot of uh, traditional Norwegian brewers that do this, and I use this method a lot. The easiest way to propagate yeast, go out and find you a, let's say, a foot long, two inch round uh, log off of a peach tree or an apple tree, strip the bark off of it, drill a bunch of holes in it, put a string on it. Once you pitch your yeast, uh, throw that log in there, and let it set for 24 hours. Pull that log back out, hang it up somewhere dry and out of the sun and cool. Next time you get ready to pitch yeast, throw that log in there. Let it set for 24 hours. It'll take right back off because that yeast has infected that log. And no yeast, yeah, the interesting thing about yeast is, so people always worry about mutating, changing flavors. It can do that, but it doesn't happen as quickly as what a lot of people think it does. Uh, so as long as that yeast is in a very similar environment, a repeatable environment, right, where the temperatures are pretty well close to the same, the yep. nutrient situation is close to the same, they don't mutate fast at all. They mutate very slowly to the extent that the house yeast that we're propagating uh, at French Lick, we're literally dipping back. There's no, there's one backup sample that we've not gotten back into. We're literally pulling back out of the ferment every day and saving our yeast back. We've been doing that now for over two and a half years. And we're not noticing any noticeable changes whatsoever to quality, the aroma, the flavor, any of that kind of stuff. Um, as far as capturing your own yeast, that's that's incredibly easy, too. I've captured yeast from old distilleries all over southern Indiana. Um, like I said yeast likes to infect wood. And when you bring in an alcohol tolerant yeast uh, into an environment, it tends to outcompete all the other organisms within that environment because it's so efficient at actually breaking everything down. There's a lot of wild yeast won't take something to being completely dry it'll die oh. out before it gets there so if you go to a, a, a place where there was a distillery 100 years ago right and there's uh i've done this with buildings i've done it with uh, old wooden fermentation barrels i've even done it off apple trees around old distilleries what i'll do is i'll make a, a normal mash and it can be a sugar shine mash or it can be an all grain mash after i make it i'll sterilize it so i'll take it up to 212 for you know 15 20 minutes make sure everything in there is completely dead put it into a sterilized mason jar, put your piece of cheesecloth on top of it, take it and put it where you suspect there's some yeast at, let it set for 24 hours, come back and look at it and see if it's bubbling. If it's bubbling, take that sample, split it in half, put half of it in another sterilized mason jar, cap it off, put it in your refrigerator, let it go dormant. Let the other side set out on the counter at room temperature. 
watch and see how fast it works through that that sugar. And if it were as it works through that sugar, does it work through all the sugar? Does the mash taste good? Does it smell good? If it tastes good and it smells good and it finishes, you've probably got a good alcohol tolerant yeast strain that you can keep going, either with that log method or by recollecting every time that you pitch and keeping the liquid yeast alive. But that keeping the liquid yeast alive gets to be a pain in the ass real quick. Yeah. Um, the other way that you can do it is you can you can actually take uh, uh, depending on the strain, if it's a bottom fermenting strain, uh, you can take some of your grains out of the bottom of your fermenter, um, take those and, and dry them down and break them up, basically grind them up. Now you've got, now you've got a powdered yeast, a very primitive say, powdered yeast. You say take them and grind them up? Yep. Dry, dry them down like in a dehydrator yeah. at a very low setting, like at 95 degrees because yeah. they won't kill the yeast. And then I just throw them in like a, a coffee grinder and hit them real quick and pulse them a couple times. And now you've got you got powdered yeast on hand. It's not, it's not as pure as like the powdered yeast you buy, obviously, but it's the same strain. Right. So huh. that's fucking crazy. So the first time we, I've ever messed with, uh, even a natural yeast setting in was, uh, always over here. He went and got some, uh, uh, grape skins. What are you going to tell him the story, man? Yeah, there's a, a winery up by me that me and my wife go to and, and, uh, started talking to the guy and I'm like, Hey man, you know, I want to, um, I want to experiment with spent grapes, you know, yep. like kind of like grappa, but not really made like grappa. Right. So I, I called it hillbilly grappa. And, uh, <laughs> I, and I, worked. yeah. And I took him up some, uh, empty 55 gallon, you know, plastic food grade barrels. And he calls me up about a week later, like, Hey man, I filled up those barrels for you. And I'm like, cool, man. I'm, you know, I'm expecting just a little bit. And I get in there, I get there and there's uh two 55 gallon barrels packed full of, uh, some yep. rosé some rosé grapes that he had half pressed and um and some white grapes that he pressed and i'm like damn <laughs> so I, I get them home and i start breaking it down and i'm filling it up with water and before i know it you know i've got 400 gallons of hillbilly grappa going and i'm like man what the hell do i do with all this like i'm gonna be running that 50 gallon still forever and, you know, luckily Sean made a deal for a triple digit. <laughs> we made that shit disappear, but it was cool to, um, you know, I dumped all my sugar in and I was going to yep. come back later and, and so uh, cool, man. pitch some yeast and I popped it open, man. And it's just going like crazy. Yeah. He texted and, me. He's like, dude, this shit's fucking working. I'm like, okay. He's like, I didn't add no yeast. Yep. It was just well, all, all those grapes. Yeah. And it I'm was. Like, it, it was distinct. It was different, you know. And it is, it, it's it's everywhere. So as long as the pH is good, you know, you're you're likely going to get a good strain that'll take off. Now it can be a little. Sometimes natural fermentations can be a little a little hard to control, but I, I'll tell you that's still that's still the method for a lot of uh, traditional production, especially in in cognac. They're not adding uh, they're not adding yeast to those grapes in cognac. They're using the yeast that's on the grapes. Yeah. Uh, same thing here in southern Indiana for the most part with the apples. They were using the yeast that was on those apples. Uh, to get up and going, and I, here's a, a cool experiment I'll tell you guys about. Uh, jump off here in a few minutes. I don't want to talk oh, to everybody to death. I wish I had documented <laughs> this, and, and I might, I might do this again. If you guys ever want me to come on the show again, I'll be happy to. But uh, fuck yes, a couple years ago. Um, so I, like I mentioned, I love small stills, right? I absolutely love. Them. Even if I'm only going to get like a pint of liquor off something, right? If it's an experiment, it's worthwhile. It's cool. It's fun to do. So a couple years ago, I, I would just take a couple five gallon buckets. And I just make simple sugar shine, right? That's all it was, just one pound of grain, one pound of sugar. And it was all just straight corn and no yeast. 
So what I would do is I'd go to different places I thought would be interesting. So the prerequisites were that it had to be a place where I could get potentially some raw material, like if I wanted to throw some botanicals in or something like that, something from the local environment that I could play off of. There had to be a stream there where I could run the condenser off of as well, right? And the goal was to go there, go a couple weeks ahead of time, take two or three five-gallon buckets, get the sugar shine in there, leave them open, and let them get fermented, get, let them get yeast started naturally, right? Or just get yeast out of the water that was already there that I was using for the sugar shine. Come back and then distill that stuff, right? And see how that yeast was affecting it in these different environments. And what was really cool about it is nine times out of ten, they would end up getting infected with a yeast that would finish completely. One time out of ten, it might not finish completely, but you'd have all kinds of crazy fucking flavors in there that you would never, never expect to have in a sugar shine like that. Um, and it, honestly, the ones that didn't ferment as well tended to have the better flavor profiles to them. Uh, but I, I thought that was a fun little experiment. And it's something if you've got a place where you can, you know, if you've got places you can go where you can be safe about doing that, and you're just taking a little two, three, four, five gallons still, whatever. It's a fun experiment to run, you know, and it, just as a, as a hobby thing, it's a, it's a lot of a lot of fun to do. So there's a there's an old French saying that you take the um, you take the still to the material, not the material to the still. And I think that those those examples are uh, they're worthwhile. It makes sense. Less work, less yep. is more sometimes. So. Yeah, and you know, if it's just a if it's a if it's a two hour distillation or a three hour distillation on a Sunday, it's a lot of fucking fun to just go somewhere and just you yeah. know, and who cares what you get off of it? You're just learning. And that's what's funny too, man, is sometimes you'll see on, you know, Facebook and stuff, you know, people run a, a beer keg. They'll run that son of a bitch for 12 fucking hours, man. Blows yep. my mind. <laughs> yep. Turn that <laughs> motherfucker up. Turn that motherfucker there, so someone made a Someone made a post the other day on Facebook. I can't remember who it was or what it was about. It had something to do with a beer keg <laughs> or 15 gallons. And I was just like, oh, they, so they turned it up and they got to some degree and nothing was coming out. I said, turn it up till it does. Right. Right. <laughs> Get it yeah. hotter, man. Well, here's, you know? here's some practical distillation knowledge that probably pissed some people off out there, but I'm going to throw it out there because it's another mistake I see a lot of people make. And, and feel, free to, feel free to play with it and, and, and doubt me if you want to, but just try it one time. So you ever notice when you go to a legal distillery on the big stills that they always have an air vent above what do you the consider a big? What do you consider a big still? Uh, anything over 150 gallons, right? Okay. Professionally, professionally made still. They always have what looks like an air vent over top of the spirit safe, right? Uh, and here's another example. If you go to one of the huge distilleries, like if you, if you go down to Buffalo Trace, you ever notice you're standing outside, you smell acetaldehyde, ethyl acetate, because they're venting that stuff outside. So you see all this cold and slow stuff, right? And that's all, that's the mantra of the moonshiner, cold and slow. It's got to be cold and slow. So what a lot of people don't know is there is actually a proper obtention temperature for spirits, for most spirits. And that obtention temperature being the, the temperature of the spirit when it comes out of whatever condenser that you are using. Mm -hmm. So the traditionally accepted temperature range is not cold. It's 68 to 72 degrees. That's, and why, the, that's why they're calibrated to 60 degrees. Yep. And the reason for that is because the same reason the stills in those big distilleries have vents on them. Because there are compounds that you want that are more volatile. Again, this goes back to flavor, right? Positive and negative flavor. There are compounds that you don't want to infuse that liquor to 
when it's condensing, right? If you're running, even if you're running, you're still properly at home with a worm condenser, you should be able to put your hand down there and feel a little bit of air pressure coming off the very beginning when you first start distilling, if you're properly venting those things. And if you can hit that, and it's not easy to do at home all the time, if you can hit that 68 degree mark on that liquor, you'll blow off a lot of that shit that you don't want, that you don't want to infuse into that liquor. Um, and that's one of those things that people don't think about. It's one of the things that doesn't occur to them because they always hear and they constantly read and they constantly repeat it. Slow yeah. and cold, right? You want it as cold as it can be. Not necessarily. Because that's why when <clears throat> buddy of mine, I actually just built a still for, he's got a, um, what's a, he's a, you know, a five gallon bucket. You know, he's like, well, I got, you know, six, seven gallon or bags of ice for his bucket. I said, man, you want water in there. But yep. I couldn't I, at the time. I couldn't tell him why, because mm-hmm. I've you know I've I, I've heard you talk and a bunch of other people talk that are smarter than me. That you want water and you don't want nothing but ice because it can't cover the whole. Right. Yeah. 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 So. Yep. Yeah, that's 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 an easy one to 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 work around and figure out. And if you if you try it, you'll see a difference. So you know, a lot of people think, for example, that uh, rye is spicy, uh, you know, like black pepper spicy. It's really not. Uh, you can get a lot more out of it. But two, the two mistakes that people make uh, with rye that makes it spicy are using the wrong yeast strain, uh, first of all, and not properly running the still in such a way that that abstention temperature is being met and you're volatizing some of that spicy shit that you don't want in there. Um, when we run rye at work, for example, if I switch over to a high rye bourbon or a rye whiskey, I run that still entirely differently than I do if we're doing the four grain. I run that still hot and I run it fast because i want that stuff to vent and you'll you'll hear that little air vent it it very rarely does it do it but if you're running that still right when you're running rye on my still at work it'll whistle just a little bit before it starts just little little light little whistle almost like it's singing to you in the background um and it's almost unnoticeable if you don't know what you're listening to hmm so Man, that's the beauty of this, man. See, there's people watching this going, this dumb motherfucker doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about, right? I'm going to get the hate mail now. And there, yeah. there's people watching that are like, man, you know what? That's that's a great idea, man. I'm going to I'm gonna give that a shot. See, there's always both sides of the fence. You're always going to have your people like, that's a dumb son of a bitch. And you're going to have your yep. people that are like, man, I'm, and then you're gonna that's, have that's, the... that's knowledge that I want, you know, and I'm going to yep. use that. So then I'll give that. All the all the hopeful craft distillers and other piece of information about the industry too on both sides, legal or the illicit side, and it's not a popular piece of information, but it's true. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes this industry is as much about who you piss off as it is who you actually make happy, uh, because either way, they're still going to be talking about you, right? Yeah. Well, you know what's funny about that whole ordeal is if they're talking about you, that means either one, they uh, envy you, or two. Well, I guess either way, they still you're you're still in her head, living rent free, so it don't fucking matter. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, Alan, so. man, we we really do appreciate you being on our podcast, being our first um, first guest. Um, yeah, more than know, you know, we we ran really long this time, but it was it was this was amazing. It was definitely worth it. I've I've learned so much just sitting here listening to you speak. Um, and I, I can't wait to do it again. And like I said, man, I really appreciate you coming on and absolutely and, and letting us learn from your mistakes that you've made and passing along your info. And, you know, and I think that's what this is really about. This is about 
all of us helping each other from, you know, your, your big time um, true master distillers. Cause I know um, that's what Sean refers to you as is the real only yeah. master distiller he knows. I'm a fucking yeah. masturbator, but no master distiller. No, well, there's, two, there's two master distillers I know. One of them is you, and the other one is the guy I was talking about earlier. Him and his son. Nice. Backwoods of Kentucky. Hey, you know, just, just for me to sit here and listen to you speak and and pick your brain, you know, I'm, I'm honored. So, <laughs> this Well, this, is awesome this has been me, a blast. So. I, and I appreciate you guys having me on. I'm more than happy to come on some other time down the road when you want to have me on. And so I, I will tell you, I was looking forward to this because – the one thing that I don't ever want to lose sight of is the fact that at heart, I am a home distiller. That's where I came from. That's what I am. No matter whatever, whatever success comes along and whatever the, I still identify with that. And I still, i like talking to home yep. distillers because they're passionate and they fucking care. Right. Well, you don't forget where so. you come from. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. You know, all these people, even that, like we were talking about earlier on the, on the main show and this, they forget where they come from. They get these big ass fucking heads. You know, yep. and, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, but what they don't realize is 20 years down the road, all they're going to have to look back on is, well, I was on this Moonshiner show. Yep. Better if you're yeah. going to be on that show, grab that opportunity and run with it and turn it into fucking yep. something is what I'll tell you. And don't yeah. let, uh, don't let the, uh, the corporation, and I won't say their name. Don't let them, uh, don't let them fucking fleece you for everything you are and, and well, own who you end up being. And then if you can't get on, you know, you just, you got to carve out your own way. Yeah, you know whether yeah. whether it's social media or you know starting yep. building your your distillery from the ground up. Sometimes you got to grind it out um, your own way, and you know I think I think sometimes that um the people that that ground it out appreciate a little bit more than um, the people that it was yeah. just tossed in yeah. their lap and and they didn't really you know I don't want to say earn it, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, right. Maybe one day I'll get my label. <laughs> I, <laughs> I would. I wouldn't cross my fingers on that, but maybe one day. This <laughs> September, Alan will be two years from filming. Wow! I mean, that's you know, I'm, I'm a, I don't mean any disrespect to Sugarlands, but goddamn, come on, right? Should've get on with fucking pot. Yep, get on. Yeah, I was talking to. Uh, <clears throat> I'll, I'll mention this before I jump off. I was talking to uh, Amanda Bryant the other day, and I'd never talked to her. She asked me a question. We ended up on a phone call, and I was talking to her about about you know, how long it takes for that stuff to come out and everything. And it's, it's insane to me. And I'll, I'll say this too. I enjoyed talking to her. She, she was, yeah. she is passionate about it. She likes what she's doing. She, she enjoys it. She wanted, she, she asked some fucking pretty serious questions is yeah. what I'll say. Uh, so. I, I hope I get to meet her when we're down in Maggie Valley. She yeah. will be there. Uh, I figured okay. she will, but you know how, you know how it is, how busy they get. And it's Man, hard to so, get in and talk to someone. You know, Alan, Alan, how long has it been since you've been to Maggie Valley? It's uh, been a while since four, three, since four, three since or four Bill. years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but, but yeah, that's what I was going to get her to tell. Easy, you know. I mean, it's she is is uh, Jimmy Jacks making yep. going with Jimmy Jacks, and, and yep. you know, he he's uh, he's one of them guys. You know, he knows what's going on, but he tries. You know, he's kind of like you in the sense that he just don't. Yeah. You know, yeah. he don't get out there a whole lot. You know, nope. he, don't he, play he, the game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but he knows what he's doing. And and I respect I, that, you know, out or Jimmy Jacks. You know, he. I'm happy that he's doing that for her. I I enjoyed I enjoyed playing that game a little bit that I got to. Uh, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the reasons for me not going to things like that are have more to do with 
stayed at Popcorn Sutton Jam, and Pam Pam invited us down, and that was yeah. awesome. That was fucking then, great. We were going to do the Hell's Half Acre thing, and then fucking and then the sheriff's department. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there was a, there was a certain uh, TV star that uh, you know the sheriff's department didn't have any problem with our black powder pistols and us doing the Hell's Half Acre thing. There was a certain TV star who's friends with Pam Sutton that had a problem with it, and he can kiss both sides of my fucking ass. So that's that's where I'm at with guess, him. I will say two people that I would know of. Yeah, two people. Yep, yep. You know, one one of those two people is a pretty nice guy, from what I can tell, and the other one's an asshole. So, but uh, Tyler Wood and I have talked about maybe going to some of those things in the near future. You might see us. Uh, you might see us show up to one of them at some point. So, well, damn it, if you if you plan on going, you better let me know so I can show up. I will. I absolutely <laughs> will. And a lot of that depends on Tyler, and you know, if he wants to go, yeah. and uh, so, he's got stuff to say to people too. So, yeah, and well, your distillery. How late is that opening open during the day? Because I was talking to, to Easy not too long ago about maybe swinging over there sometime. Yeah, so the be- the best time to catch me, uh, legitimately, guys. And if you ca- if you come in on a weekend, that's fine. Just let me know, and I'll I'll, I'll set off some time. I've uh, I've laid off of working Saturdays so much because for the first four years I was there, you know, sixty, seventy, eighty hours a week a lot of times. Uh, and so now working on the spring mill thing and stuff, I'm not there on the weekends a whole lot. Uh, the best time to catch me is through the weekday um, and about 10 o'clock in the morning. Cause about there's, there's a little period around 10 o'clock in the morning where I've kind of got my shit together. And as long as ain't nothing fucking broken, I've got, I've got a little time there where I can hang out okay. and do, you know, do an hour tour and that, that yep. kind of stuff. Um, you know, and even if shit's breaking, I'll just run back and forth. You just have to follow me. <laughs> oh, shit. We're going to go, we're over here with the fucking thing. I don't know how to fix right now. <laughs> so, I wanted to say before I jump off here, guys, too, uh, for anybody who has any distilling questions, please, uh, I'll, I'll, obviously, I'm doing this video series, uh, One Piece of Time Distilling Institute on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, reach out to me at bishopshomegrown at gmail.com or in the YouTube comments um, on my channel, and I'll be glad to uh, to answer your question to the best of my ability and also check out spiritsoffrenchlick.com. And then if you're into distilling history and stuff like that, and you want to know anything about the Black Force of Southern Indiana, I, I do maintain a blog. I haven't written on there for a while, but uh, alchemistcabinet.wordpress.com. And then our podcast, Distillers Talk, which is catered specifically to distillers, both legal and illicit. Uh, we try to bring on uh, great guests on there that, that run both on both sides of the law. Not, not often on the illicit side anymore, although I'd like to get more of them. Uh, uh, but the, you, you get a lot of good information on there. Hell yeah. So good shit. All right, guys. Well, I sure appreciate you having me, and uh, we'll yes, catch sir, up with man. y'all soon. Thanks for yeah. coming, Alan. You guys. Have a great night. Yes, sir. Yeah. Shine on, everybody. Absolutely, guys. Thank you. And